We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 112 of the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Got a packed show. It is talking season. SEC Media Days is here. I'll preview SEC Media Days in its entirety as Will Muschamp takes the podium on Wednesday afternoon. Also have a bunch of questions to get to, including your fan responses to questions you would want to ask Will Muschamp if you got the opportunity. Also, your listener questions and a very special interview with former Gamecocks third baseman Adrian Morales as we discuss his career at South Carolina, winning back-to-back national championships, playing professional baseball, his coaching career, and much, much more. Before we get into all that, this is a podcast we're into you by our friends at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket-buying app by far, the only ticket-buying app I use. Go download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and use the promo code SPURSUP. Save $10 off your first purchase. They've got tickets to literally anything and everything. Guys, it's time to start buying your South Carolina Gamecock football tickets. Be sure to use our promo code because, listen, I've checked the, I've checked the, uh, the prices for week one against North Carolina and Charlotte. And they're not cheap, so be sure to use that promo code. Save yourself some money. But if you don't want to go to the Gamecocks game for whatever reason, if you need tickets to literally anything else, they've got tickets to college football, concerts, comedy club events, festivals, you name it, whatever you need tickets to, they've got it. They've actually got a great ticket rating system where they rate the tickets for you based on the type of deal you're getting. So you know if you're getting a steal, you know if you're getting ripped off, you know exactly what you're getting before you click that buy button. So again, please go download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Use the promo code SPURSUP. That's S-P-U-R-S-U-P to save $10 off your first purchase. All right, let's get into it. I'm Chris Phillips, your host of the Spurs Up Show, as always, coming to you very, very excited for today's show. It's talking season, as the HBC used to say. SEC Media Days is finally here. Uh, Gamecocks will take the podium on Wednesday as Will Muschamp addresses the media as he's joined by Jake Bentley, Brian Edwards, and TJ Brunson as the player representatives from South Carolina. Very, very exciting week, though. I know for me, one of my favorite weeks as far as just lets us know that football season is slowly getting here I know you're listening to this probably it's 47 or 46 days to kick off whenever you're tuning in football is slowly but surely getting here Um, and SEC media days is really for us us diehard fans the unofficial kickoff to college football season and to the SEC football season no doubt so let's get into it obviously just before I came on the show the Gamecocks released their depth chart which is normally something teams do before the uh 
before media days gets underway, every team releases a media guide if you will, and the depth chart is included. So I'm very glad I waited till a little bit later to record because I definitely want to go over this depth chart. I'll run through the depth chart really, really quickly. You've probably already seen it. At the wide receiver positions, the starters, Brian Edwards, Josh Van, and Shai Smith. Across the offensive line, you've got Sedarius Hutcherson, Donnell Stanley, Hank Banos, Jovan Gwynn, Dylan Wanham. Uh, at the tight end positions, you've got Keel Pollard and Kyle Markway. They list the depth chart in a two tight end set. Uh, at quarterback, obviously, you've got Jake Bentley. And then at running back, you have A.J. Turner. Um, on the defensive side, at defensive end, you've got Aaron Sterling. Defensive tackle, the, the tackles are Keir Thomas and Kobe Smith. Uh, the buck is D.J. Wanham. Uh, Sam linebacker is Eldridge Thompson. Middle linebacker, Ernest Jones. Weak side linebacker, Sherrod Green. The cornerback, J.C. Horn. Your two safeties are J.T. Ebay and R.J. Roderick. Your other corner is, is Israel Mokwamu. And at the nickel is R.J. Roderick. Your specialist, Parker White. Your place kicker, Joseph Charlton, the punter. Um, doing the snapping is Colin Bunch. The holder, Joseph Charlton. Punt returner, Brian Edwards. And kick returner, A.J. Turner. The one thing you need to note as well, that the guys that did not go through spring drills, um, they were not factored into this preseason depth chart. So guys like Ortre Smith, Rico Dowdle, Levante Valentine, Javon Kinlaw, Tyreek Johnson, Danny Fennell, T.J. Brunson, Rosendo Lewis Jr. Those guys were not factored in. Uh, so obviously that shakes up the depth chart a little bit. But this is very, very interesting, obviously, because a lot of people, as soon as this came out, had a ton of questions, and rightfully so. I mean, there are a lot of I mean, you just take a look. Some things that jumped out to me in regards to this depth chart, I mean, for one, R.J. Roderick is starting at two positions. They have him listed as the starting nickel and the starting safety. Um, I don't know how he could possibly play two positions at once. Um, you also take a look, A.J. Turner listed as the starting running back, I think, which was a surprise. Um, listen, this overall depth chart, I think people obviously, it's, it's a very interesting talking point, but this depth chart is going to change a ton, a ton before we get to kick off against UNC on August 31st. Um, no doubt in my opinion, because you think of all the young guys that aren't listed on this too deep. You think of Zach Pickens, all the young defensive backs. Again, you think of the guys that are injured, like the Javon Kinlaws, like Ortre Smith, um, Rico Dowdle, even TJ Brunson. You think of those guys that were held out of spring um, they're not injured now, so I apologize if I said that, but they were held out of spring that are not factored in this too deep. Um, I think this more so, and I feel like Will Muschamp is the type of coach that he would not put out a depth chart if he didn't have to. The only reason he's putting one together is that he has to and has to put something together for the media, and therefore you get this. So, you know, overall, I, I expect the depth chart to change in some areas very much, especially the secondary. Again, you look at the two cornerback positions – J.C. Horner, Israel Mokwamu, I don't think any surprise. Those are your starters. But behind both of those guys is A.J. Turner. And with all due respect to A.J. Turner, love the kid, but he's not going to be your second-string cornerback at either one. I fully expect guys like Cam Smith, Johnny Dixon, uh, Shiloh Sanders, guys like that to step in and be dudes that get a lot of playing time and that, uh, you know, and, and that really take up those roles. One other that's not listed as well is Jamel Cook. I was very surprised to not see him in the 2D, but either safety position. Those are JT Ebay and Jam Williams at one safety, and then RJ Roderick and Jalen Dickerson at the other safety. So to not have J, uh, Jamel Cook in there after, you know, the spring game that he had for sure, which I mean, listen, the spring game doesn't mean a whole lot, but uh, I thought a guy we saw with some potential um, is very interesting. But again, if you're a fan, obviously you're a fan, if you're obviously you're a fan if you're listening to this, but if you're taking a look at this preseason depth chart, I wouldn't jump overboard with it or jump to conclusions or, or, you know, or make any conclusions right away from this depth chart. Because, again, it's going to change 
a ton, in my opinion. I know it's going to change. 100% things are going to change. They're going to go through fall practice. Guys are going to step up. Guys are going to win certain spots. I think it's just simply that Will Muschamp has to put out a depth chart, and this is what he comes up with. So I really don't think it's a big deal. Again, you know, I think things could certainly shift if a guy like Tavian Feaster chooses South Carolina. Um, I think a guy like Zach Pickens will find his way into the two deep eventually. Um, I thought it was very interesting to see J.J. Anibari at the defensive end slot behind Aaron Sterling. They were actually listed as Aaron Sterling or uh, J.J. Anibari. I think Anibari would play more inside. Um, we'll see on that, obviously. We'll, we'll see if he plays more inside or outside. But I would be shocked if Zach Pickens doesn't find himself in the two deep by the time we get to UNC. Um, as far as the offense, I mean, I, I, you know, the only thing I guess <laughs> – I don't even want to mention it because I feel like we get the controversy started. But to carry on Joyner – or Ryan Holinsky, a big or there, obviously. The backup quarterback battle, the backup quarterback position is something everyone wants to talk about. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see, I guess, how that plays out. But overall, nothing really crazy, nothing that really just blows you away on this. I, I think maybe, I guess, something that is still interesting is that Brian Edwards um, still listed as your starting punt returner, which – you know, I'm not, you know, listen, he was dependable last year, but I would be very, I don't know. I'm not going to say I'd be surprised because I think they're focusing on more so guys that can, a guy that can just catch and secure the ball. But behind him, you have Josh Van or Shai Smith. I would love to see those two guys get a shot at it. Um, maybe even a guy, a new guy like Jimmy Robinson, who we know is electric with the ball in his hands. I would love to see somebody like that get a shot with it. Um, versus, again, Brian Edwards, who I love the guy, but it just, that doesn't feel like a natural fit for his skill set. Just, that just does not feel like what he's meant to do on the football field. So, um, again, the preseason depth chart, it is what it is. It's a fun talking point. It lets you know the football season's very close when the depth charts start to become released. But if you're taking a look at that and you're asking a bunch of questions, wondering what's going on, what happened to this guy, where is this guy at, that depth chart is going to look completely different, in my opinion, by the time game week gets here. I would love – I think we should do that. I would love to see – and compare the depth chart for game week against UNC versus this one. Because I just – there will be a lot of changes. I just, I just can't imagine that it looks anything similar to what we're looking at right now. Um, another piece of news before we actually get into the media day stuff, Maxwell Yama, the offensive lineman, deemed medically ineligible by USC. So kind of a uh, kind of a crappy situation for him. Obviously, a guy I believe he was going to be a sophomore this year, a redshirt freshman. Um kind of dealing with a similar situation that Taven, Taven Jackson dealt with, a defensive back that transferred. So, obviously, prayers out to Maxwell Yama. It's obviously a crappy situation when a kid works as hard as, you know, these guys do to, you know, make an impact and play on this level, and they're deemed medically ineligible. So, um, prayers out to Maxwell Yama, obviously. So, let's get into the SEC media day-specific stuff. Obviously, like I mentioned, Will Muschamp taking the podium on Wednesday. Again, guys, this is one of my favorite times just simply because – we're all craving and starving for some sort of football talk, and it's finally here. We finally get to hear these guys talk about the upcoming season, um, and it's a lot of fun. It just it just is. It's a lot of fun. Will Muschamp, again, taking the podium Wednesday. He'll be joined by the three players, Jake Bentley, Brian Edwards, and TJ Brunson will be the player representatives for South Carolina. Now, I posed the question to you guys um, over the weekend. If you could ask Will Muschamp any question, any question, what would it be? Uh, I was hoping some people would call and leave some voicemails. Unfortunately, there were no voicemails, so it is what it is, but a lot of responses. So either way, I appreciate you guys taking the time to respond to make this a fun, interactive thing. And there were some good responses for sure, and there were kind of some on-the-fence ones, <laughs> no doubt. So let's go through these because I want to read off some of the responses that you guys had. 
Um, Al Raybone uh, on Twitter, these are all on Twitter, said, what are some things you are doing different from your time as head coach at Florida as it concerns your coaching staff and entire football team? I think, Al, that's something that has been asked really a ton since Will Muschamp got the job at South Carolina. Um, Stacy C says, why is Bobby Bentley still on staff after having one of the worst running games in the SEC the last three years? Why is Jake Bentley still a starting quarterback after leading the SEC in interceptions the last two years and choking in big games? Um, well, Bobby Bentley's not the running backs coach anymore. He's coaching tight ends now. So I think they addressed that issue. And Jake Bentley is a fourth year senior starter, um, who I know can improve, but they're not going to bench him for a freshman. So that, you know, that is just, you know, it is what it is in that regard. Um, the big gooch says, when are you going to demand for matching jerseys to the script helmets? That's a great question. Um, Somebody asked, where is Valentine as far as Levante Valentine was injured in the spring that was noted on the depth chart. So he should, I think he should be back this fall. Um, <clears throat> first class Gamecocks, what is one super embarrassing thing Kirby Smart did in college? I would love to know that as well. Um, D. Hugh, have you done your best to have the team ready to go? And if he has, say, I'm, and if he has, I say I'm good with that. I mean, what else is he going to say that he hasn't? I mean, come on, come on. Um, <laughs> Rusty Ramsey, why didn't you let Michael start after Mizzou, even if it was for one damn play? Hey, that's a question a lot of us wanted answered last year. Um, Aaron Riddle, what is your honest observation of your defensive back unit as a whole? I, you know, I, I think that's a really good one. And I think it's something where I think he'll get a lot of questions about the defense simply because I think that's going to be a really improved unit. And I've, I've talked before, I think it's the most talented the defense has been the most athletic the South Carolina defense has been since 2013. So I think there should be a lot of questions in that regard because there should be some buzz and excitement around that defense this year. Um, Nathan Evans says, I'm a big fan of some sort of head cover on my football coaches. What played into your decision of not wearing any sort of headgear during games? I, I kind of like that question, actually. I, I'd like to know, too, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> Real Jerry Bullman, knowing JB is the starter, what's the plan for having a quarterback with experience and ready to go September of 2020? I, I mean, good question, I guess. I, I mean, it's I don't hate the question, but I, I think you're going to get a pretty bland answer from Muschamp there. Um, Steve MC, if JB is having a bad game, would you hesitate to change quarterbacks? I think that's something that will definitely be asked at SEC Media Days about his leash on Jake Bentley, and it kind of spoils where I'm going to in my question, so I don't want to go too much farther into that. Uh, Thomas Morana, if Jake struggles early in the season, will you play with another quarterback? Kind of the similar question. Uh, TME726, what the hell happened at that bowl game? Great question. I think that's the million-dollar question we're all trying to figure out. Gamecock Dave, can you please beat Kentucky? Good question. Again, that's another good one. And then David Clark, finally, when are you going to win a championship or go 11-2? and two? <laughs> Oh, man, that's a good one. I mean, that's just a good one in the sense that, yeah, I think we're all kind of wondering that. I wish he could actually give us a true timetable now. Okay, so I wanted to read off you guys' responses because obviously I asked for the responses and wanted to know what you guys thought. Now, I want to give my questions as far as three questions, three specific questions, if I can only ask three, three questions that I want answered by Will Muschamp. And I assume in this scenario, he's being fairly honest, okay? Like, we're, we're – I don't want to steal the idea from our, our, our buddies over at Saturday Down South, but they did a podcast recently last week talking about if you could give each coach truth serum, um, if you give them truth serum and they had to tell the truth, what question would you ask? And their questions were sort of off the wall, if you will. Mine are going to stick mainly to football. 
Um, but I'll just say, I don't know if Will Muschamp has had truth serum, but he's going to tell me the truth. We're, we're, we're having a one-on-one discussion, and Will Muschamp is going to let me in behind the scenes. This is what I want to know the most. This is what I want Will Muschamp to answer the most for me. Number one, what is Jake Bentley's leash, and how is the quarterback situation behind him? I think that's something huge going into this season that we all want to know. What is the leash for Jake Bentley? Because, listen, nobody's going into this season hoping or, you know, I guess thinking that Jake Bentley is going to have a terrible year in 2019. Quite the opposite. I think most people think, are optimistic at least, that Jake Bentley will take the next step as a senior, maybe cut down on the mistakes and not make the same mistakes he made as a freshman, sophomore, and junior. Um, but if he does not, because we saw the way that Jake Bentley, Jake Bentley, I feel like is a very streaky quarterback. He is a very hot and cold type quarterback. And if Jake Bentley goes through another lull that he had a season ago, I'm just curious to know what is the leash behind Jake Bentley? Because I know a year ago and the year before, you know, with all due respect to our guy, Michael Skarnecchia, I'm assuming the coaching staff never really felt like they had anybody that could come in and spell Jake Bentley really effectively. Um, obviously, Michael Skarnecchia came in last year and won the Missouri game and didn't get the start the next week. And that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother podcast because I think you guys, if you were following along last year, you remember how heated that got. Um, and my, my comments and my conversation in regards to how the quarterback situation went down, obviously it worked out and whatever. But, I, you know, I'm just curious to know, with a guy like on Joyner coming in as a redshirt sophomore, a guy like Ryan Halinski who's finally on campus, who's extremely capable – and people are extremely high on, you know that fans, especially if Jake Bentley goes back into a slump, if you will, fans are going to start are going to start barking. They're going to start demanding for Holinsky or Joyner or another quarterback. I'm just curious specifically, if I could ask Will Muschamp, Coach, what is his leash? I mean, what at what point are you willing to make the change if necessary? Again, I, I'm not saying that I want a different starting quarterback for game one against UNC. That is not, and I'm certainly not trying to create a quarterback controversy. I'm saying in the event that it is necessary, I'm saying in the event that Jake Bentley does have one of his slumps, and only in that event, what is the leash like? Because I really feel like at this point right now, you know, Will Muschamp has sort of put his chips in the Jake Bentley basket. I mean, he's sort of, you know, just – He's sailing that ship until it sinks. I mean, really, because you feel like if there was the opportunity to bail on it or to change up, it would have been last year. So I'm just curious, though, with guys behind Jake this year that you feel are truly capable and can come in and be effective and, you know, possibly win you some games. I'm just curious what the leash is behind Jake. And then the other part of the question, what's the quarterback situation? I mean, it's the question everyone wants to know. Who's your number two? Is it Ryan Holinsky? Is it to carry on Joyner? Um, you know, I, I think you guys probably know where I stand on this, but I'll be honest with you. I'm surprised that the carry on Joyner is still in a Gamecock uniform. Um, I, I don't think the carry on Joyner, as much as people like the carry on Joyner, I think he's extremely capable. I think he's extremely athletic, has game breaking type athleticism. I, I wish he would change positions. I wish he was a guy that was willing to do that. And I think either way, they're going to, he's going to be a guy that South Carolina uses in some sort of goal line packages, red zone packages. They have to. I mean, he's just a guy that is too dynamic not to get on the field. But really, this comes down to, you know, the quarterback situation. When are you going to name Ryan Holinsky the number two guy? Because I think we all think and know, we at least all think that Ryan Holinsky is going to be the number two quarterback for South Carolina. Um, so I'm just curious, what is that quarterback situation like? Who's your number two guy? And then what is the leash on Jake Bentley? My second question for Will Muschamp that I won't answer. 
it sticks with the offense. How Two-part question. How will the tempo this fall compare to last year's team? Really, your offensive scheme, how will it be different? And then how are you going to force the issue with the running game and make that a productive component of this year's offense? Um, I'll start with the first part of the question, obviously. You know, I'm just curious to know what's going to be different because that was a huge talking point a year ago. That was a huge thing we all talked about leading up to the season was the tempo, tempo, tempo. This, this offense is going to look so much different. I'm just curious to know what's going to be different or better, I should say, about the offense this year versus the offense last year because we're really not talking about the offense all that much I mean we're talking about the main things Jake Bentley the quarterback situation the receiver core how do you replace with Debo Samuel things of that nature but the the talk is very mellow compared to last year I'm just curious to get Muschamp because here's the thing people think that Will Muschamp doesn't know offense quite the opposite Will Muschamp knows offense I think as good as anyone he's a football nerd he's a football geek he studied how to stop these offenses so he knows offenses he knows what his offense at South Carolina is going to be doing I'd like to know what he thinks is going to be different about his offense this year than compared to last year in just being honest I mean what's going to change about it how what what can you guys do better that maybe you tried to do last year that didn't work because it was the first year in, in Brian McClendon's system um and then also the second part of the question how are you going to force the issue with the running game and make that a productive component of this year's offense? Simply put, man, I don't care who is behind center for the Gamecocks. I, I don't care who it is. It can be Helensky, Joyner, Bentley. It can be Peyton Manning. I don't care who's behind center. Connor Shaw, Steven Garcia, any of those guys. If you don't have a decent running game, not even a good one, not even above average one, if you don't have a decent running game, this offense has no chance. This offense has absolutely no chance. I know we're all still waiting right now, obviously, on the Tavian Feaster announcement, which is maybe something I would slide into this question. I feel like I'm kind of cheating here because I'm asking multi-part questions, but whatever, this is my show and I get to make the rules. So <laughs> this is my game. Um, no, but I mean, obviously, the Tavian Feaster situation is going to have an impact on, on the way the running game pans out. Uh, so, I, I, But I'm just curious, would you hire Thomas Brown, obviously, your running back coach, he obviously he, – he, he noted that the running backs did not produce last year up to their capabilities and did not do what they needed to do. Simply, point, simply put, plain and simple, and I completely agree with you. But how are you going to change that? What's going to change about the running schemes, the running styles, about your philosophy in the run game? What's different about it? Because you have to be able to run the football. South Carolina will not have a good year if it cannot run the football in third and fourth and one. Third and short, fourth and one. Just, it will not have a good year. Six and six will be, will be a massive achievement if South Carolina has a porous running game. Just period. I, I mean, you can't be a good football team if you can't run the ball and stop the run. In South Carolina, they've gotten better at stopping the run, but running the football has been an issue for these guys. It has been a major issue. And, I mean, Thomas Brown being hired, I'm as, I'm as excited as anybody about Thomas Brown being there. I think he's going to change the mentality of the running back room, if nothing else. I think he's going to bring – I think he's going to be much more looking for – you know, I talked about all offseason. Number one priority is finding running back number one. Find RB1. I think he's going to get South Carolina a lot closer to that than Bobby Bentley did. I, I think it's, we're going to see a lot less of distributing carries to three or four guys. But at the end of the day, if you have the same guys that really haven't been all that productive for you and haven't been – haven't been all that consistent what are you going to do 
to force the issue with the, with the running game, with running the football. Because we've seen South Carolina's offense try to put it all on Jake Bentley's shoulders. And it normally – I mean, listen, any quarterback would struggle in that scenario, but it doesn't normally work out well. So South Carolina's got to find a way, especially with so many swing games on the schedule, the Gamecocks just simply have to find a way to run the football. They've got to find a way to find a consistent running game and run the football, more importantly, when they need to, when they, when they have to be able to run it. Third and one, fourth and short, times when they're trying to run out the clock, times when they're trying to ice a game, things of that nature. I'm very curious about that. And my third and final question that I want Will Muschamp to answer, what has changed, if anything, to avoid the injury bug that hit the defense last season? I know it's – listen, I understand, and I feel when people try to attack the training staff or try to attack things that really don't make sense or try to just place blame on something just to give it a reason, I don't like that. I don't like that because it makes it seem like the South Carolina's training staff isn't doing their job or somebody's not doing their job. This is the reason for the injuries. Listen, freak injuries happen, man. Injuries happen in football. Injuries happen in sports, period. But what happened last year with South Carolina with all these injuries at the same positions, really? I don't want to know. I don't want to know anything about last year in the sense of, hey, whose fault do you think it was? Why did it happen? Any of that. I just want to know what precautions or if have you changed anything to make sure that you keep all 22 healthy? Have you changed anything to make sure that you're as healthy as you can be throughout the entire season? Again, I know injuries come down to good and bad luck. I understand it. But I still think if you're South Carolina, I would be absolutely shocked. And I think it'd be kind of irresponsible if over this past offseason or during this offseason, they didn't take a look at what may have happened. I just think you have to with all of the injuries that hit because there aren't many teams in college football. I don't care who they are. There aren't many teams in college football that could have withstood all the injuries that South Carolina did and have a half-decent year. I mean, when you really think about it, the fact that South Carolina went 7-5 and five with all the injuries they had on defense, I'm, I, I mean, I, I know it was a disappointing year. I would agree with that. But still, I mean, when you think of that team went 7-5 and five with all those injuries on defense, it's a, it's a minor miracle. It's a minor miracle. So I'm curious to ask Will Muschamp, Will, what is, what's changed? What have you guys – what are you doing differently to assure that that does not happen this season? If anything, have you changed any? I'd be curious to know. I know I said three questions, but I've got a bonus one that just came to the top of my head that I'm not going to miss out on the opportunity to talk to you guys about. My last bonus question for Will Muschamp that I wanted to answer, and really, again, it's just something that I've seen on social media and something that just came to the top of my head, but what must happen to avoid the type of letdown that happened in last year's Belk Bowl? I would just – I wish – now, this is kind of a truth serum question right here because I would love to know straight from Will Muschamp, Coach, what happened? What happened? How, how, how did this team come out so flat and lose focus? And you know what? It's not even so much about the belt ball anymore, but what are you going to do? <clears throat> what are you going to do to make sure that does not happen again? Because the schedule this year is way too difficult to come into any game sleepwalking. It just is. You're going to get beat. You know, I mean, there are, there are two games on the schedule that I could say are games where South Carolina could simply roll their helmets out and win, and that is Charleston Southern and probably Vanderbilt. 
And I'm scared to even say Vanderbilt because they've got Keyshawn Vaughn. And, you know, you really don't want to say App State because they've been known to pull the upset. So Charleston Southern is really the one game where I'd say, you know what, we could play our scout team and probably win. No offense to Charleston Southern. I, I doubt there's any Charleston Southern fans tuning into this podcast. But if you are, no offense. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, South Carolina just cannot afford to have a lapse in concentration or to sleepwalk in a game the way it did in the Belt Bowl of last season. I want to know from Will Muschamp, straight up from him, what happened in the Belt Bowl and what are you doing to avoid what happened? What must you do to avoid that type of letdown? Because South Carolina simply just cannot afford it this year. Simply cannot afford it. So that's what I would ask Will Muschamp. Again, you know, very excited, obviously, for SEC Media Days. It's, it's always a great time. It's talking season, as the HBC used to refer to it as. But, uh, you know, I, I'm very excited for it. Um, I, I'll be curious to hear, you know, obviously all the guys, but Will Muschamp and then Jake Bentley. I, you know, I, I'm curious to hear the questions that are presented to Jake Bentley because – you know, I think Brian Edwards, TJ Brunson, they're going to get the common. You know, I think Brian Edwards will be asked a lot about becoming the, the, the number one wide receiver, taking over Debo Samuel. I think TJ Brunson will be asked a lot about, you know, the, the, the revamp defense and how he feels about all the young guys coming in and, you know, Will Muschamp's style of defensive, uh, defensive coaching. And this is going to be the best defense they've had under Muschamp, things of that nature. But with Jake Bentley specifically, I mean, this is the, this is the most veteran quarterback in the SEC has not made a single All-SEC team, has not even been mentioned, hasn't been mentioned. I, for, I don't know if it was Phil Steele or just, you know, one of the other All-SEC teams. There were top four, first team, second team, third team, fourth team. Jake Bentley did not even make the fourth team All-SEC team. He's the most veteran quarterback in the SEC. The, the level of this, you know, and listen, I'm not debating that he should be. I, I mean, I don't know that he's done enough to be – to make any of those teams, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sitting here and telling you that he a hundred percent should have been one, one of those teams, but it's a slap in the face. I, I mean, it, when you're the most veteran quarterback in the league and you've played all the reps that he has and it's a slap in the face, man, I, it's just a slap. I'm just curious to the way he reacts to it. And I'm sure all these guys will be programmed just the way Muschamp is to, give the coach speak, player speak responses, very mellow. I, I don't expect anything off the wall, but I, I just wonder, I, who's going to be the guy, too? I, I wonder who's going to be the guy to kind of ask Jake Bentley, Jake, what do you feel like your legacy is at South Carolina? Do you feel like you're being kind of under underappreciated or undervalued, at least by nationally or by SEC media writers? or by? I mean, you're, you're, you're a fourth-year starting quarterback, and you're not even an all-SEC caliber player. I, that'll hit home. I, that, that's just that, – that's a tough question. That's a very tough question, man. So I'm curious to hear what Jake Bentley has on that, that, you know, comments to that. Obviously very, you know, curious to hear. I expect Will Muschamp to be very upbeat. I expect Will Muschamp to talk about the schedule a good bit. I expect Will Muschamp to say this is his best team he's ever had at South Carolina, which I would agree with, but I, I 100%, I think he probably opens his statement with the schedule and that. So should be very interesting. Uh, again, Wednesday is when Will Muschamp will take the podium. I believe I saw earlier the Gamecocks go on Wednesday, and the time is 1.30 uh, – excuse me, 2.30. 2.30 Eastern time um, is when South Carolina will start here. I've got it pulled up here. Um, yep, 2.30 to 6.30 will be the times that South Carolina will have the podium, basically, or will have the spotlight, if you will. 
Um, so, yeah, should be a good one. Should be a lot of fun. Obviously, I know South Carolina fans will all be tuned in because, again, it's finally college football. College football season's finally getting here, and this is just, a, just, just enough to hold us over until fall practice begins in just a few weeks, I guess you could say. Um, all right, cool. Let's get into your listener questions. We've got a lot of good ones. We'll start Hutton underscore Thomas 13. How do we utilize Dak and Ryan this season if we project Jake to start all year? I think the carry-on joiner will be utilized in some sort of, like I talked about earlier, red zone type package or a goal line type package. I think with Jake Bentley's struggles in the red zone a year ago with the interceptions and South Carolina's inability to run the football a year ago, I, I think it would make the most sense to get him down there. You've got to change something up. You've got to He's just, again, like I said earlier, he's just too dynamic of a playmaker to not get the football in his hands. And what better place to get it in his hands than down near the goal line, I think would be a great play. As far as Ryan's concerned, I mean, I think he's just going to be trying to get, you know, just playing junk playing time this first season. Unless, again, and I'm not pulling for it, obviously not pulling for it. I don't, I don't really think it'll happen. I think Jake Milley will have a good year. But the only way that we see more than just garbage playing time or kind of garbage minutes for Ryan Holinsky is if, you know, Jake Bentley has a really bad stretch or bad year or, God forbid, injury, knock on wood, no injury. Um, so, yeah, I think you'll see a little bit of Ryan. I don't think it'll be in any big-time scenarios, but, yeah, that's where I see the two guys playing out. Um, K underscore hop 12. Who's going to return kicks? What do you see Jam's role being? And I feel like you asked that because you think he should be returning kicks. So, uh, and then, you know, Right now on the depth chart, they've got listed A.J. Turner and Shai Smith. I, I, I know A.J. Turner has done it before, so I think that's sort of the default to throw A.J. Turner there, which, I mean, I don't hate. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I've said for, you know, since Jam Williams got on campus, I'd love to see Jam back there. We know how explosive he was in high school with the football. I could see Jamie Robinson being a guy doing it. Um, I, Shai Smith wouldn't be a bad fit. Josh Van wouldn't be a bad fit. Um, so it's really up in the air at this point. It really is. I mean, if I had to guess, um, God, if I had to guess, I, I feel like they're going to keep AJ Turner back then. I really don't want him to. I mean, listen, I like AJ a lot, but he's not, he's not the most explosive guy on the Gamecocks team. I, I would love to see somebody else back there. It's got a little bit more big playability, but in right now, if I had to guess, I think they might go safe and play AJ Turner, but we'll see. And then jam, you know, uh, jams role, I think you're, you're actually talking about Jamias Williams, not Jamie Robinson. We're, we're going to have to, like, clarify that from now on because I feel like we have two, two jams at this point. But I'm assuming you're saying Jamias Williams. Jam, um, you know, I, I've expected him to play the nickel. I thought it was kind of surprising he wasn't listed as the starting nickel on the, on the, uh, the depth chart. He's actually listed as the backup safety to JT eBay. So, anyways, he'll play all over the secondary. I mean, he's a guy that has – you know, played all over the secondary. Obviously, I, I just – I would love to see them move him back, either moving a nickel or moving back to one of the corner positions because I, I didn't think he looked great as a safety a year ago. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was a rough transition. I thought it was a much tougher transition than we all expected. Um, but, I mean, he's obviously going to play a huge role in that Gamecock secondary this year. Uh, Ethan Crocker says, will Jake Bentley have a breakout season? I think Jake – or Ethan, that's the million-dollar question. You know, will Jake Bentley have a breakout season? Um, I, I mean, the biggest key to that, in my opinion, outside of finding a consistent running game, things of that nature, but things that Jake Bentley can, himself can control. The biggest thing in that is that he needs to just cut down the dumb mistakes, cut down on the interceptions. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. Just cut down on the interceptions and be better in the red zone. I, I mean, that's, that's really all it comes down to for him. He wasn't terrible a year ago. 
But the mistakes he made were so glaring in the amount of interceptions. He's got to at least cut the interceptions in half, in my opinion. He just has to. What do you have, 14 a year ago? That's just not going to get it done. That's not going to get it done. You know, I think if he throws less than 10 interceptions, South Carolina has a chance to be 7-5, and 8-4, and four, maybe 9-3. and three? He throws more than 10, though. I think South Carolina's fighting for 6-6. Six and six. I just do. I think the schedule's too tough. I think they're fighting for 6-6 six and six if he throws more than 10 picks. So, that's the million-dollar question. Jake Bentley, he's got all the potential in the world. It's finally his senior season. What more fitting – you know, what would be more fitting than him to have a breakout year in which he really creates his legacy at South Carolina, takes down a couple of the top dogs in the country, no pun intended. But uh, we'll have to just wait and see on it, man. We'll really have to see. Um, Joe D022, what is going on with Feaster? Is he not a take for us now? I think he's still 100% a take for South Carolina. And listen, I think they're just waiting on word. I mean, I don't think there's – you're not going to have an update for about two weeks or so, I would say, at least. So, I think South Carolina, just just like Virginia Tech, just waiting on, on word from him. So, I, th- I think he's still 100% a take, though. I'd be shocked. I would be upset and shocked if he wasn't. Um, the Joel Sario, how big of an impact will Shy and Ortre Smith play in this year's offense? I think huge. Oh, I, I think especially Shy. I mean, I, I'm excited to get Ortre back. I think Ortre's a guy – Big body wide receiver, obviously 6'4", 220, a guy that I was really excited about last year that obviously had a season cut short. But, man, I mean, if you've heard me on this podcast or read any of the articles I've put out, I mean, Shy to me, is the guy that is going to take over for Debo Samuel. I, I fully expect Shy Smith to have a monster year this year. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because Brian Edwards is obviously going to be the number one wide receiver for South Carolina. There's no doubt about that. He's going to be the number one. But I could see Shai Smith finishing with more catches and more receiving yards, just flat out. I mean, I, I just think when you look at the skill sets, because that's one of the biggest questions of this offseason, without a doubt. One of the biggest questions I've been talking about all offseason is, who's going to replace Debo Samuel? I mean, who is going to be that big play guy when South Carolina needs it? And it's something, again, I don't think you really know until you start playing the games, because it's one thing to have talent, to have a skill set, to be very relatable in what you do in your game as far as size, speed, agility. Because Shai Smith and Debo, I, I would say their games are almost exactly the same. But it's different when you get under the lights to have the knack to want the, you know, to want the ball and to want to make the big play. I think that is a huge difference. I, don't, I, don't, I doubt you guys remember we had Perry Orth on a while ago. And that was one thing he talked about he thought was different from – the, the, the South Carolina teams that were really, really good, and then the 2015 team he was on, for example. It's the difference between you have, have a bunch of guys who want to make the play versus having a bunch of guys who are looking around seeing who's going to make the play, for example. So I don't think Shai Smith has any issue with making the play, but you don't really know until you know, until it happens. So, but I, I think Shai Smith could be a huge piece. Again, I think he could lead, lead in receptions, lead in yardage. Would not shock me at all. And I think Ortre Smith, you know, it sounds like he's fully healthy. I, I think he could be a real big surprise in regards to, you know, a lot of people don't know who Ortre Smith is just because he played as a freshman, was injured last year. Um, you know, so I, I, I'll be honest with you. I think all around, this wide receiver core this year could be better than last year's. Really. I mean, because last year, what, you had Debo, you had Brian, you had Shy. You know, beyond that, Josh Van was a freshman – Tavis Dawkins and Randrikas Davis were very hit and miss, very inconsistent, injury-prone, things of that nature. You know, this year you've got Bryant, 
You've got Shy. You've got Ortre back from injury. You've got Josh Van, who's a year older, who I still think is going to play really good football for South Carolina, somebody who was a really highly touted recruit out of the state of Georgia. You've got Michael Wyman, or excuse me, you've got uh, you've got uh, Tyquan Johnson coming in. You've got some other young guys that can fit in. You've still got Randrikas Davis and Chavis Dawkins back. So I'm very, very excited for what this wide receiver core can do. And again, I think overall, top to bottom, it could be better than last year's, but you've got to find that one guy who's going to make plays for you. You've got to find that playmaker. I think Shy could be it. Um, underscore Jay Blanche, what does Jake have to do to prove himself as quote-unquote elite in the SEC? It's a great question. Great question, Jay. I, you know, I, I think to be considered an elite quarterback in the SEC, number one, again, he has to cut down the turnovers. He's got to finish with less than double-digit turnovers. Um, to be considered elite, this is what I think stat-wise he needs. I don't know how many yards, obviously over 3,000. I think he needs over 30 touchdowns. He needs under 10 picks. I think he needs to go out and beat a team he shouldn't beat. Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, pick one. At Texas A&M, Florida at home. I'm not saying those are ones. You know, I, I, I think those are more toss-ups. But the, one of the big three, Georgia, Clemson, Bama. He's got to go out there and win a game. I mean, he, he's got to – you know, you think of – like I, I, I talked about this before. Every Think of all the coaches at South Carolina that have had their signature win. There have been quarterbacks as well that have had their signature game. You know, Connor Shaw's, you could say, was every game. I mean, but 2013 at Mizzou, obviously coming off the bench was one. But I think back even further, 2012 Mizzou, when he went, what, 20 for 21? Completed his last, like, 20 in a row? Something like that, or 20 – I don't even know what he went. But, yeah, he threw one in completion. Obviously, Steven Garcia, the Alabama game. I mean, that's a no-doubter the game of his life. You know, there have been quarterbacks that have had breakout performances in huge games, in big games. When is Jake Bentley going to have that one? Listen, I know he threw for over 500 against Clemson, but South, and it not totally his fault. Not totally his fault that South Carolina really wasn't in that game because he had no defense. I mean, South Carolina was playing seven freshmen, starting seven freshmen on defense. You know, the Gamecocks, if they had a half-decent defense, could have probably made that a much closer game throughout so give Jake Bentley all the credit in the world for that performance last year but really to be be considered elite he needs to cut down on the turnovers he needs to be more consistent and he just flat out needs to go win a big game I I mean that's like I I said before Jake Bentley's legacy can be changed this offseason there's no question in my mind Jake Bentley's legacy he can make his legacy this year I promise you and I know you guys agree if if Jake Bentley goes out there and South Carolina beats Really, if they beat any one of the big three, I would say, but if they beat, say, Clemson and go nine and three, let's say, South Carolina goes nine and three and beats Clemson. Jake Bentley's legacy is not, and Jake Bentley, let's say, has a great year, obviously. He'd have to, he'd have to have a great year. Jake Bentley's legacy is not going to be, oh, man, he went so and so against ranked opponents. He, he, you know, remember when we lost this game or lost that game, or he, he didn't play well in the Belk Bowl, or he didn't play well in the Texas AM game in 2018. His legacy is not going to be that. His legacy is going to be, man, Jake Bentley, he was awesome. He beat Clemson his last home game. He, he upset Alabama at home just like Garcia did. Like, Jake Bentley has the opportunity to create that legacy for himself. And this entire team has that opportunity. But Jake Bentley, as a player, has that opportunity to completely flip the script on how South Carolina Gamecock fans think and feel about him. Will he do it? that's up for debate. And again, he's, he needs help. 
He needs help. He needs a running game. He needs his receivers to catch the football. He needs his offensive line to play well. We all understand that. But, again, you ask the question, what does he need to do to be considered and prove himself as elite? Cut down on the turnovers, throw for 30 touchdowns, 30-plus touchdowns, and win a big game for South Carolina where he really just has the game of his life, where he has that game. I think that's what he needs to do. Last question here, H. Wilson 100 What is the difference between boneless wings and chicken nuggets? That's a really good question. Well, I think the difference normally is there's sauce on boneless wings, right? I mean, are you eating boneless wings plain is my question. Chicken nuggets, there's no sauce. Also, boneless wings, because there's sauce, you're eating with ranch, whereas chicken nuggets, you're eating with honey mustard. Um, the texture's different as well. I mean, I could, you could argue a, a boneless wing is a fancy chicken nugget, right? I mean, that's, I think we could kind of argue it that way. <laughs> I think we could argue it that way. But, uh, yeah, I feel like that's a question you ask after you hit the blunt one time. And come on, you go into the Instagram and ask that question. Love it, man. Appreciate you uh, asking that. I might have to go get some boneless wings now that you brought that up. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. So again, God, I'm very excited guys. I mean, I, I know you can probably tell I was, I was jumping all over the, all over the place at the beginning of this show, but I'm so excited. SEC media days. It's just so good to have football back. We're finally talking football guys. We finally made it. We made it. We made it. The, the off season is practically over. We're talking just the fact that tonight I'm recording this Sunday night, obviously the fact that tonight there were football, there was football news coming out. Oh, what a great feeling the depth chart, the, any news, it's like, oh, man, this is great. So I'll be tuned in all week, obviously, obviously for Wednesday when Muschamp and the guys go, but I'll be tuned in all week getting all the football fix. I know you guys probably will as well. Um, some housekeeping items before we get to the interview with Adrian Morales. Go do me a favor. If you're listening right now, click the pause button. Go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to the Spurs Up show. Leave us a five-star review. Leave us a short written review as well if you want to, but leave us five stars either way. If you have any feedback or comments or anything you'd like to see done differently or things you appreciate or enjoy, let me know. It, it, for one, the reviews help other Gamecock fans find the show. And for two, it looks really good on the Spurs Up show, obviously. And it helps me to know what you guys like, appreciate, don't like, want to see changed, things of that nature. Obviously, also check out the Spurs Up show store. A lot of fun stuff happening there, thinking there might be another drop this week. Be sure to stay tuned to the Spurs Up Show store. Uh, just go to the SpursUpShow.com, click on the store. There's a lot of cool stuff. Obviously, the all-in on Osterine shirts were a, I'll be honest with you, much, much bigger hit than I expected. I appreciate you guys. That was awesome. That was hilarious. So check those out. Send your Clemson buddies a gag gift. It's really, really funny. Um, but yeah, a lot more, a, a lot of more, a lot more drops coming before football season. Gonna have some really, really cool stuff I think you guys will appreciate. Um, as we get closer to football season. All right, let's get into this interview with Adrian Morales. Adrian, obviously a third baseman, or was the Gamecocks third baseman on the 2010 and 11 national championship teams. Fantastic interview. Adrian, I mean, just a phenomenal guy. Had me ready to run through a brick wall. A guy that, if you can't get motivated, listen to this dude talk baseball and talk about the Gamecocks. If you, if you don't get fired up, there's something wrong with you. Um, we talk about, again, his path to USC going to JUCO, winning back-to-back -back national titles, winning the Columbia Regional MVP in 2010 making the all-tournament team for the regional in 2011, his relationship with Ray Tanner, pro ball, coaching, anything and everything, recruiting, everything you can think of and more. And it's all brought to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket buying app by far, the only ticket buying app I use. Like I mentioned, guys, 
it's time to start buying the tickets for South Carolina football, no doubt. If you're not a season ticket holder, if you need your tickets, if you're looking for individual tickets, SeatGeek is going to have anything and everything you need. Like I said, I've already looked at some of the prices for the Bank of America, for the, uh, the Belt College kickoff at Bank of America Stadium. Those tickets ain't cheap. Let me just put it that way. So let me put you a little suggestion. Go create a SeatGeek account, right? Go create a new account. You already got a SeatGeek account? Great. Go create a new one. Use our promo code, SPURSUP. You got to download the SeatGeek app first, obviously, or go to SeatGeek.com to do so. But use that promo code SPURSUP. You're going to save yourself $10 off your first purchase. Save yourself $10 off your Belt Bowl tickets. Why not? I mean, it makes the most sense. Um, they've got a great ticket rating system for you as well, obviously. If you don't want to sit nosebleeds, if you want to get a good deal, maybe sit lower level, they rate those deals uh, on a ticket rating system where you really know before you click the buy button if you're getting a really, really good deal if you're overpaying a little bit much, so you're never going to overpay. You're always going to get the best available ticket for the best available price. They make it super simple, and they really ease your mind before you click that buy button. So again, go download SeatGeek or go to SeatGeek.com. When you do, use the promo code SPURSUP, that's S-P-U-R-S-U-P, to save $10 off your first purchase. All right, enjoy this interview with former Gamecocks third baseman, Adrian Morales. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up Show is a man that played for Gamecocks baseball from 2010 to 2011. He hit 277 with 12 home runs and 96 RBIs, helped lead the Gamecocks to back-to-back national titles in 2010 and 2011. He was also 49th round draft pick by the Kansas City Royals in 2011, played professional baseball from 2011 to 2013. I'm very, very excited to welcome one of the anchors and one of the true leaders of the Gamecocks national champion baseball team to the show, former Gamecocks third baseman, Adrian Morales. Adrian, appreciate you taking the time, man, and it's a pleasure to have you on. No problem, man. Any, any chance I get, I, I get to talk about, you know, those teams and talk to somebody in South Carolina and the fans, uh, it's always a pleasure. Absolutely. So, Adrian, let's go back to the beginning for you, because obviously you went the JUCO route. You went to Miami-Dade Community College, which is where South Carolina found you. Uh, I want to ask you, though, just kind of talk about your path as far as deciding to go JUCO. You know, obviously a lot of guys do that, but what was the reasoning for you uh, to take the junior college route? Well, coming out, coming out, of, uh, out of Miami Springs High School, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of people come watch uh, the guy in the big leagues that's now, Yasmani Grandal. You know, he was my high school teammate. Um, and I, I don't know, I just kind of somehow always got overlooked, um, which kind of helped me out on the field, uh, helped me play with a chip. And I had some offers to some, to some small D2s and NAIA schools, but I didn't want to choose that route. And uh, the recruiter, Frankie Damas, you know, really sold me on the tradition that is Miami-Dade um, and told me, you know, play here for two years and I'll get you to, to somewhere big. Um, I didn't know it would turn out to be South Carolina. And we'd end up winning back-to-back national championships. Um, but I, I made the right decision, and, and it's been a blessing. No doubt. Obviously, Adrian, you were very successful at Miami-Dade. Just kind of talk about that second year, your recruitment. Obviously, the Gamecocks were the team that landed you. But, I mean, what was your recruitment like, and uh, when did you know, and why did you choose South Carolina? Well, the reason I chose South Carolina, and the only people that were in the mix was Miami and FIU. And the reason I chose South Carolina was because playing in the SEC, you're going to play and compete against the best. And I wanted to do that. Um, I, 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 they, they always told me, you know, playing in the SEC was like playing in double A. So I want, that was the, the, the goal was to get to the big leagues. Um, I thought South Carolina was the best fit. On top of that, the rapport me and Coach Holbrook had on the phone uh, was awesome. You know, he called me 
And it was it was about what South Carolina could do for me. He never bashed Miami. He never bashed FIU. Um, not saying Miami did did that, but other schools did bash South Carolina about hey they they over recruit. They're never gonna play there, which made it even more fun. Um, and then the money was right. Um, Holbrook believed in me. You know, gave me a good scholarship, and you know we made it work. Well, Adrian, what did you know about – because it's funny, the guys that are recruited now, I think, you know, what they think of when they think of South Carolina baseball is what you guys did, the nat- the back-to-back national titles, going to the national title in 2012. Um, obviously, South Carolina had a really rich – has really always had a really rich baseball tradition, if you will, with what Ray Tanner did during his tenure there. But what did you know about South Carolina baseball, if anything, you know, before you signed? I, I knew nothing. I, I, I All I knew was that they were in SEC. You know, when Coach Holbrook called me, I remember I'm talking to my, one of my older brothers and Coach Holbrook tells me, hey, check out our website, um, check out our facilities and stuff, and you know, we'll chat up next week. So I check it out and I, I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, it, it was the South Carolina and SEC, big-time program. And I told my brother Gene, I go, Gene, South Carolina just called me. We, we, didn't, we had no idea who they were. You know, I, I'm born and raised in Miami. Um, I wanted to play in Miami. You know, wanted to play in front of my, in front of my family. Um, but I made the right decision, and now I got family in South Carolina, which is which is kind of cool. For sure. So, Adrian, what was the plan? I guess you had a lot of conversations with Chad Holbrook and probably Ray Tanner as well, but I know South Carolina, um, obviously it was a transition year going from 09 to 10. I know they lost a couple of guys, particularly some that we've had on this show, but what was the plan for you when you signed? Because, obviously, when you take a look at your stats, I mean, you were a very steady guy that played and started in every single game, basically. Was that the plan for you to sort of come in and just be the everyday third baseman for Carolina? That, that was not the plan. Um, the plan was I was coming in to play second um, and compete for a job with, with Scott Wingle, which is probably my best friend. Um, now, you know, when I first got there, I didn't know anybody, so I was just there to compete and – and trying to earn a job and, and, and help the team win in any way I can. Um, I was able to play second, short, and third at Miami-Dade as well as I did in high school. So that kind of helped me be able to transition to play third if I needed to. You know, it made me be an asset um, in the sense that if, if somebody was struggling at third, I can play third. If somebody was struggling at short, I can play short. Um, and I was able to get that experience at, my, at Miami Springs, my high school, and then Miami-Dade. No doubt. So, Adrian, let's move into your 2010 season. Taking a look at your statistics, you know, pretty solid. 273 average, had nine homers, 56 RBIs. Um, I'll ask you, you know, because there, I know there's a transition. There has to be some sort of transition. But what was the transition like for you um, from JUCO to SEC baseball? And for you, was there a specific moment that clicked that I, I know – I feel like it's this is a funny question because I know you have the chip on your shoulder and you don't need to have this moment. But – was there a specific moment for you where you felt like, you know, you belonged in the SEC playing on that level? Well, I, I, what I remember, the, the hardest thing with transition for me was that there was no day off. You know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the SEC, you're facing a top 10 rounder. You know, there, there's no breaks. There's no midweek that you can get your stats up. So it, there has to be a level of focus that I didn't need at, at the junior college level. I had it. I didn't need it, though. There were sometimes we played, you know, a really bad junior college just to get, you know, games in. Um, so, you know, going back to, to that year, there was a moment we were playing Mississippi State, and I was, you know, spot starting here and there, 
And I think I went two for three, two for four with a home run against Mississippi State. And Coach Holbrook texts me after the game. And he tells me, that's a big-time performance by you. We need you in this lineup. You're one of our guys. That was the moment where I kind of told myself, okay, let go, have fun, and be who you are. You know, it was hard for me to, to transition into being a leader because I hadn't been there. I hadn't done anything. So why would guys listen to me? I, I haven't done anything. You know, and that, 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 kind, that game when Holbrook texts me with that, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like, okay, I'm here now. Now I get to be Adrian Morales and I get to play my style of baseball. Um, and that's why Holbrook was such a good recruiter. He knew how to talk to guys. Um, and now he's at College Charleston. So it is what it is, but that, that, that was the transition for me. For sure. So, Adrian, you know, obviously guys that come from out of state, like you said, you knew nothing about South Carolina when you came in. I'm very interested to get your take on the South Carolina-Clemson rivalry, obviously one of the best rivalries in all of college baseball. Um, you, you had some big moments in that, I believe, your first Carolina-Clemson series. I think you had a base hit in all three games, and obviously we know what happened 2010 in Omaha. But uh, talk about when did the moment click for you when you realized just how big of a series that was for South Carolina? My, my first year, it wasn't, it wasn't big. You know, it wasn't big for me at all. And I think that's why I was able to just play free and be, be able to have some success without playing with pressure or any, or any tension um, that first year. Um, obviously, in Omaha, it's, the stakes are different. Um, but just watching my teammates on how they were so amped up for those games. Um, but I knew nothing about the rivalry until I think his name is uh, Lamb, Will Lamb. I'm not yeah. sure what the kid's name mm-hmm. is. Opened his mouth about Tyler Webb, about him being soft in 2011. That's when the rivalry really kicked up for me. You know, because he called Tyler Webb soft after, after I think it was a Saturday game at Clemson. Um, but, you know, that, that's when really the rivalry, you know, it, it hit me where I had to, def, you know, defend one of my teammates and, and I wanted to defend one of my teammates uh, for them calling uh, him soft. Um, crazy thing about it is Tyler Webb's in the big leagues and I don't know if that guy is or not, <laughs> but that's kind of kind of nice. No doubt. So that 2010 season, Adrian, obviously, you know, let me ask you this, actually, going back to you talked a lot about your teammates. And I think it's kind of curious to hear you say that, you know, you had some hesitation when you first got there, obviously, of being a leader and being because I feel like Gamecock fans, I know I do when they when they look at you and your career and from everyone that I've ever talked to about you says that, you know, you were you were one of the rocks on that team. I mean, you were and it you showed on the field, you were a guy that you were a leader, your teammates, guys that I've talked to described you as you're the, the, you, you want the big at bat. Like you want to be up at the plate with the game on the line. Um, you know, just, just kind of talk about that relationship with your teammates, the chemistry you guys have, because obviously it was very easy to see in 2010 and 2011 and even 2012 after you had left. I mean, the chemistry on South Carolina's team was so high. And I think that was a huge reason why you guys really had the success that you did. Well, it, it always, it, it goes back to my high school, my last, my last game, we had a really good team, and we didn't get to the state championship game. You know, we lost in regional semis. And that hurt me, and it still hurts me more than ever because I saw those, ki- uh, those, those my teammates as my brothers. And to not be able to lead them and go over three in the game, you know, really stuck with me. Um, so I carried that throughout my whole career. And I always tried to hold myself accountable and hold my teammates accountable because I cared. 
and I, I never wanted to let them down. Um, I remember against uh, Arizona, was it not Arizona State? Is Oklahoma first game 2010? I fly out to end the game, we lose in Omaha, and that hurt me so bad because I felt so bad for the seniors that were leaving. You know, and I and I and I text Enders and I text Dave Brown and I told them next game I'm gonna give you everything I got. You know, it wasn't a Tim Tebow moment or nothing like that, but it was it was just just to them too. And you know, really nobody knows about this, but you know, I text both of them and I told them I'm gonna give you everything I got. And I ended up hitting a home run against Arizona State off the foul pole. You know, and, and that's just who I was. Um, you know, I cared more about about winning and and every time we lost and I didn't perform. I, I, I thought it was my fault. If I ever stranded a runner and we lost that game, it was my fault. Um, and it, I was just an extension of Coach Tanner. You know, I, I, it's been my fault where every, every, every team I played for, I'm kind of an, an extension of the coach. Um, and I hated to lose, you know, as the whole coaching staff did, um, especially Tanner. Um, so it, it, that's, that's who I was. That's who I was when I was young. That's who I am now. Adrian, talk about your relationship with uh, with Coach Ray Tanner because obviously he's a legend of the game. Uh, you know, a, a Hall of Fame caliber college baseball coach and baseball mind in general. It's you know, it's interesting to hear the guys different relationships that they have. You know, there's a lot of guys that you know they talk about how tough he is. He's obviously a very tough coach to play for, but I think he he really knows how to bring the best out of his players. But for you specifically, it sounds like you guys had a really good relationship. Talk about that a little bit. You see, there's everybody's different. You say he was tough to play for, that some guy said that. To me, he wasn't. You know, he treated me like an adult. He told me what I needed to hear every time. He never sugarcoated anything. If I was struggling, he would tell me, hey, what's going on? You need to get out of it. You need to get out of it. We need you in the lineup. You need to get out of it. You know, it, 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 was, it, was, it was what I needed. And he knew how to talk to everybody differently. You know, he wouldn't talk to me the same way he spoke to Mike or Robert Barry. You know, he spoke to everybody in a certain, in a different way because he knew how to reach guys. And, and that's what made him such a good coach. Um, but he, he, stayed on my, he stayed on my butt. He, he need, he, I needed that. Um, it, it, it wasn't easy to play in the SEC. Every day was a grind. No doubt. So let's move into the NCAA regionals, Adrian, where it really clicked for you. You were, you were named the uh, NCAA regional MVP in the 2010 regionals in Columbia, also made the all-tournament team. You guys sweep through the regionals again in Columbia, beat Bucknell, the Citadel, and Virginia Tech in three games that weren't really close, and you homered in all three games. Uh, just talk about, I guess, simply what clicked for you in, in that regionals and once the postseason began. It, it was Coach Tanner telling me that I was two for 21 – in my last 21 at bats, that's what it was. He he asked me, "What's going on?" Brought me into his office. What's going on? You're two for 22 or something like that. You all right? You need a day off? That was it. I left the office. I was like, I I I, I I'm leading the team in RBIs. I'm doing everything I can. What more does this guy want from me? You know what? I'm gonna get after it. And it was just that relationship that we had. He knew how to get the best out of me. Um, and I was playing with a chip in the regional because of him. So every time I hit or I hit a home run, it's I was not that I was sticking it to him, but I was showing him, hey, I'm here. Right when you needed me most, I'm here. And and that's the relationship we had. I laugh about it now because I can still see him screaming at me in his office that I'm two for twenty two or something like that. 
That, that's awesome. So, <laughs> Adrian, I, I'm, I want to go back a little bit because I'm looking at the names in the win columns for South Carolina, these pitching matchups. We talked about already the transition from JUCO to SEC, but how much did it help you adjust quickly that, I mean, you were facing names in inner squads and scrimmages like Blake Cooper, Michael Roth, you know, uh, Matt Price, Jose Mata, Sam, Sam Dyson. Dyson. I, I mean, how, it had to help the transition period for you, like you're saying. I mean, you're facing – some of the best arms to roll through South Carolina in the last – really in the history of, of the baseball program. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mike Mike and, and Blake Cooper were probably – and Sam Dyson were the toughest guys to face because Blake didn't throw anything straight. Even when he threw a fastball, it either sank and ran or cut. I remember throwing a bat, slipped off my hands into, into the stands during the Black and Garnet series. Um, he was the toughest guy to face. And, I mean, I'm not the only one that says that. You can ask the whole SEC that year. He was the toughest guy to face. Um, but it, it, made it, it made it easier when I faced other guys. Um, Sam Dyson was also tough, tough to face. Um, when, when he wanted to, you know, bump up 96, he could with some sink. Um, Mata was my roommate, and I played against Mata when we were together in junior college. Um, I don't want to say I owned him. But I kind of owned him, so I kind of knew him already. Um, but yeah, man, Blake Cooper, uh, Blake Cooper, and Sam Dyson, and, and Roth were, were were tough guys to face. Um, you know, Matt Matt Price, um, he threw hard, um, but he kind of, you know, not that he was that dominant when I first got there. So what he is, what he was later in my career at South Carolina, um, but definitely that second year was tough to face Matt Price. Because he threw hard, and he always pitched with a chip, and he knew I played with a chip, so he won. He won. He knew I would talk some trash if I if I was able to get a hit off of him. Uh, but I didn't face him much. Um, but yeah, man, it, it, it prepared me. And and playing playing in the conference I played in in Miami Dade, we faced top of the line guys too. We didn't face them every day, but every junior college at that level had a top guy that was 93, 94, 95. Um, so that kind of prepared me as well. So, Adrian, let's move into the Super Regionals that year, 2010 Super Regional. You, you guys go to Myrtle Beach to take on the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers, which I want to get your opinion because I've had multiple guys, multiple of your teammates tell me they think that was the best team that you guys played that year, including every other team in Omaha. What, what's your opinion on that? Best team position player-wise, no doubt. They can they can bang with anybody. They play defense. They had power from the left and right side. They can hit. The pitching was good, but it wasn't SEC pitching. Um, but yeah, they they were a tough team, and they they slugged their they slugged their way that second game, and we found we found a way and a hanging slider to to Walker is what did it for them. You know, I, I think that's what they lacked was the depth in the bullpen and on the mound that we had so that that was the difference but but no doubt one through nine hitting wise and and, and position player wise best team we faced that year adrian simple question has the ball that christian walker hit in myrtle beach landed yet it has not landed yet <laughs> you know you know talk, talk to talk about that that at bat um i think jackie walked i hit a double and i'm at second base and the first two sliders that christian takes are painted on the black at the knees, pitches that you do not want to swing at, and he took them. 
You know, I wasn't even mad that he didn't swing at him because there were tough pitches. And I think he lays off one in the dirt, um, and then it just backs up, and it, it, it turned into slow motion for me because it, it just hung right into his bat pass. And as soon as he hit it, I turned around, and Coastal Carolina shortstop had pimped the home run that game. And I just let him have it. I let the shortstop have it. <laughs> Round the third, you know, rest rest is history. Um, but yeah, man, that 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 at bat for Walker was such a good at bat, and he he's a freshman. You know, you I, I didn't see that when I when I saw Walker in the fall, he didn't act like a freshman. His at bats were were so good, so tough. You know, I, I remember him falling off about seven pitches over the uh, the first base dugout against Dyson or Cooper. And then he hits a double in the left center field gap. You know, you could just see that, how good of a hitter he was going, going to be. No doubt. So I want to ask you, Adrian, just talk about the rush of emotions because, you know, obviously one year prior, you're playing junior college baseball, you know, nothing about South Carolina, you know, fast forward or maybe a year and some change later, you know, you beat Coastal Carolina, Bobby Haney throws the first, the final out. You're going to Omaha. Just just talk about what the rush the rush of emotions were like for you. I, I never experienced anything like that, and I'm smiling now because um, I never envisioned myself being a part of a of a college world series or or going to Omaha. You know, I, I never wa- I never even watched Omaha until the year I signed that I saw LSU win it all, um, and I thought, damn, that's pretty cool. If if I can if I can get there with you know, if I go to South Carolina and we get there, that would be pretty cool to play in front of that many fans at Rosenblatt. Um, never envisioned that we would get there, you know, throughout the season. But once we got rolling and we went to Arkansas and we swept Arkansas on the road, and the third-base coach for Arkansas, his, his last name is Butler, he told me, you guys have a good chance to get to Omaha because of Sam Dyson and Blake Cooper. You guys got two good arms. You guys can get to Omaha. And when we swept them that, that series, I knew we were a really tough team and we had a chance to get to Omaha. And the emotions, man, were, 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 were crazy because, I, you know, I've never experienced that, especially playing in front of so many great fans and, and that atmosphere. Um, it, it was awesome. You know, you, when you're playing, you really can't hear them because you're just, you, you know, you're, 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 you're losing yourself in the game. Um, because if you try to hear them, you won't play freely and play and be who you are. Um, but after, you know, after the innings and, and after the at-bats, and especially when you hit a home run, it's a, it's a great feeling playing in front of that atmosphere. Um, and and it, was, it, was a, it was a blessing for me. I, I never envisioned that. So, Adrian, you guys go to Omaha, obviously, and uh, I know you're probably excited to be there, obviously, but you guys face Oklahoma game one. You lose four to three. Blake Cooper actually takes the loss. Uh, just kind of walk me through. What are your What are you thinking after that? Because it's funny, I, you know. I talked to Michael Roth, and you know he he's kind of a jokester, whatever. Was saying his mindset was sort of well, at least we made it. You know, we, we might not, uh, you know, we, we might not do anything else, but at least we made it to Omaha. I, I feel like you're a guy more so that you're you know you're more. I don't want to say more resilient than Michael Roth, obviously, but you're you're not the defeatist mentality, like you're not saying it's over. But obviously you mentioned already, you got the last out in the Oklahoma game. I mean, what is your mindset? Did you guys think, okay, we're going to rattle off, what, six, seven wins in a row and win the whole thing? Or what was the mindset after that loss to Oklahoma in 2010? You know, Coach, Coach Tanner always, always preached, you know, play the next out, play the next game, 
play next inning. Um, we we were so prepared from playing in the SEC and the SEC schedule um, that it didn't really phase anybody. Um, everybody handles it a, a different way. I, I I took the L and and it hurt because Cooper was a senior and he didn't deserve that L. And I went maybe 0 for 4 in that game. I I felt like I lost the game, especially making the last foul. That hurt me. Um, so my mindset for the next game was, you better show up today and do everything you can to continue to play in Omaha. Um, and I think I, I started off the inning with a base hit that got the, the, the eight inning, you know, started and ended it with home run. Um, we were just so we were just so prepared and mentally prepared from the SEC grind and the schedule that it, it didn't affect us in, 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 in any way. We knew we can we could have we can win and and when we did for sure so obviously Arizona State's funny they come in as the number one overall seed you guys really take it to them again 11 to 4 the final score I want to talk about your home run Adrian talk about specifically that at bat it's funny I was watching the highlight before we came on the show Um, just talk about that at bat the pitch you saw because you absolutely crushed that baseball I I believe it was like a 10 something pitch at bat Um, and I kept falling off pitches and he kept I don't know if he was throwing change-ups or, or two-seam sinkers that were, that were coming in. Um, and it got to a point where I told myself, forget about the outside corner, look middle wind, clear the hips, and, and just try to hit the ball hard. Um, and that's what, that's what I did. It was, it was so fulfilling for me because of the previous game. You know, I was playing in, against Arizona State, but the Oklahoma game was still on my back. Um, and I wanted to help in any way, you know, obviously before me, Jackie goes yard, right, uh, left center field, um, gives us a, a six zero cushion. Um, so I was, you know, I was playing freely in the at bat. There was no pressure. We were up six zero. And the more pitches you see, the, the more, the better timing you get. Um, and I was just hoping to stay fair and the clank, you know, answered it all for us. For sure. So let's move into the next game. You know, Adrian, it's one you got to talk about. You guys get the rematch with Oklahoma. Uh, simply put, a 3-2 win in 12 innings. Jackie Bradley Jr., how, how clutch was that at bat that JBJ had? Because, I mean, obviously, again, it kept the season alive. And uh, obviously, he comes around to score, and you guys are advancing. Man, he, he was our guy all year. You know, the, the toughest guy I ever faced my two years there was a guy named Drew Pomeranz. Ole Miss, he's in the big leagues now. Um, I've seen Jackie go backside double in the SEC tournament against this guy twice. You know, so we wanted Jackie up to bat. I'm so surprised they didn't walk him. You know, you had a base open, righty versus righty on deck. doesn't matter who's on deck because Jackie's our guy. We wanted Jackie up there. And Jackie is so even keel that, that he never gets too high, never gets too low. That's the guy that needed to be up to hit. You know, it, it, he, it, he wasn't overwhelmed with the moment. He was having such a good college world series already. Um, and I think he was coming in with, with like a hitting streak. Um, so that's the guy we wanted. And him taking that 2-2 pitch wasn't easy to swallow. Really close pitch. We held our breath. Everybody looked at each other in the dugout like, wow, how did he take that? <laughs> Like, we almost told them, we almost wanted to say, hey, swing at everything close, type of thing. Um, and he gets a base hit, and 
you're, you know, in, in a moment you're, you're, you know, you're, you're going crazy and you just tied the game, but you're not surprised because it was Jackie Bradley. You know, he was so good that year for us um, that at the end of the game, you're like, it was Jackie. You're not surprised by it. You know, in the moment you're, you're shocked and you're, you know, you're going crazy. But when you start to think about it, they should have walked them. Why didn't they walk them? Been our best player all year. You know, so, which kind of helped out because UCLA didn't walk with Merrifield to face Jackie or, or, or Walker and Witt hit the patient to win the game. So, you know, we, we got lucky. We had some lucky breaks and some timely hitting. Um, but, yeah, that, Jackie was, was, was our guy. Yep, and every great championship team does. There's no doubt about that. Uh, talk about, you know, Adrian, you guys beat Clemson two games in a row to get to the championship series. Uh, I know you're probably a guy that really didn't worry about it too much, but that first Clemson game, obviously the pitching matchup was up in the air. Um, really the legend of Michael Roth is born. He gets to start, you know, the, the story goes, they're hoping for two, three innings out of him. He goes the complete game. Just talk about, you know, you're in the field for this. I mean, how impressed were you with Michael Roth's performance that night? I mean, I don't even know how to put it into words because, you know, Mike was always a, like, a, like a specialty guy where he'd come in, you know, throw an inning, maybe two. Um, he'd never had started before. I knew he had stuff to keep guys off balance, you know, and, 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 and just like Tanner said, uh, I remember in an interview, that he was hoping for three or four innings from Mike. Um, and once the game got rolling and Mike got rolling and he's getting weak contact and, and, and guys looking foolish, the moment was not big for Mike. It was big for Clemson. You know, it's kind of like they were like, you know what, we got a game to play with. We're all right. And they took Michael Roth for granted. They thought, hey, this guy's never started before. And, I, and I'm, just, I'm just speculating. I'm just looking at it from, from our angle. And once we started to put runs on the board and Mike kept pitching the contact and our defense is so good, Bobby Haney and, and, and Wingo up the middle were, were unbelievable. The outfield is incredible. Um, so just him pitching a contact, we knew we had a chance. No walks, I believe. Um, one unearned that Enders, they say it was a pass ball. Enders my guy. I think it was a wild pitch, but, Whatever it is, what it is. Um, but anyways, one earned or no earned, he still pitched a hell of a game, and and we needed him. It was it was it was huge for us. For sure. So the next night, obviously, you beat Clemson again, four to three, a dramatic game. Um, again, I, I know you talked about 2011 is really when the rivalry clicked, but just talk about it again because it was. I don't know if you knew about the history at the time, Adrian, but obviously South Carolina in 2002 did the exact same thing, beat Clemson twice in Omaha to get to the championship. Um, just ha talk about how sweet it was. I mean, again, you come back from the game one loss to Oklahoma to beat your arch rival twice and know that you're going to the, the, uh, the national championship series against UCLA. Well, at, at that point, it was huge for me because, because of my guy, Wingo. You know, Clemson didn't offer Wingo a scholarship. And Wingo's dad, I think, I mean, played at Clemson. Yeah. Um, not that Wingo wanted to go to Clemson, but they didn't even offer him a scholarship. So that's why it was so joyful for me, because it was like we, we helped Wingo stick it to Clemson. 
That's awesome. That, that, that is awesome. Simply put. All right. So you go into the UCLA series, Adrian, I, I think this is a really interesting series. Obviously you're facing some of the top arms. I mean, Garrett Cole started game one. He is a, we see him every fifth day in the big leagues. Obviously Trevor Bauer didn't pitch in the series, but we see him every fifth day in the big leagues as well. What was the team's approach going into that series? Because again, you're facing, I don't know that UCLA was great at the plate. And obviously I think it showed in those two games Obviously, South Carolina's pitching was just able to shut them down. But uh, what was the team's approach going into that series, knowing that UCLA had these kind of arms? And then that's what the SEC does. It, it creates and gives you confidence when you play against, you know, teams in the Big Ten or Big 12, no matter what from where, because we face those arms too. You know, obviously Garrett Cole now, it wasn't the Garrett Cole from then. The Garrett Cole that's in the big leagues now, we wouldn't have hit. That's for sure. <laughs> but the Garrett Cole then, you know, we have faced guys like that in the SEC. And we had so many lucky breaks. Brady Thomas, Tech swing double or single, RBI. I hit a ground ball to second base to end the inning under the guy's legs, run scores. You know, we had so many breaks go our way where if you're watching it on TV and, you know, I, I saw in the game, here and there, we're meant to win. Like, how can this happen? Check swing base hit. Brown ball on the second baseman's leg. It's almost like we were meant to win. Did, did and it, if you're watching it on TV, you see it that way. Did it feel like that to you? Maybe, maybe to you personally, or maybe in the uh, in the locker room in the dugout. I mean, did it? Did it? Because it, you're right. I mean, when you watch it, it felt like South Carolina is the team of destiny. Did it feel like that to you guys, or to you personally as well? When when you when you're in, when you're in the moment you really don't see it, but after the game you know you start to look back and we're laughing at the fact that we just beat a top arm, scored seven runs, and I don't even think we hit a ball hard. You know there might have been a guy hit us you know score him up, but you know we we scored and got some early runs, um, and then once you give Cooper runs, it was over. You know we played so different. Um, with Coop on the mound. We just did. Uh, it's a fact. It happened all year. You know, Coop had to face the top ace every time, every Friday in the SEC. And it was – we wanted our guy to win versus that guy because Coop was always the underdog. So we created a sense of let's do it for Coop. Let's win. Let's beat this top guy for Coop. I think we, get, we did it against Sonny Gray. We did it against Drew Pomerantz. Um, and we did it against Garrett Cole. Uh, once you gave Coop that many runs of support, he can do his thing. You know, he didn't have to pitch um, and any 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 pressure or anything like that. Um, not that he wasn't good under it, because he's calm, cool, collected, fisherman type of guy. Um, but once you give Coop runs, it's over. Adrian, let's talk about the next game. Obviously, you guys go into the game two against UCLA. You're up 1-0. Obviously, a win gets you the national championship. Back and forth, great game. One of the great games ever at Rosenblatt Stadium, in my opinion, goes the 11th inning. Simply put, let's jump to it, man. Whit Merrifield's at the plate. Uh, you know, has a 2-2 count. He laces the ball in the right field. I just, just try to summarize or try to, try to recap what that feeling was like when you saw that ball go into right field and knew that you guys were the national champions. You, you you just you lose yourself and all the hard work and all the weight rooms and, and the runnings and and uh in the locker room getting chewed out meetings and you know all the grind and all the traveling 
and you see it come to fruition, it's, it's amazing. And it didn't matter who did it. That's the biggest thing for us in 2010. It didn't matter who got the big hit. It didn't matter for us who got the big hit. All we wanted to do was win um, and play for each other. And, you know, we're hitting that ball uh, backside. And, you know, he's, Will was our pretty boy. He was our face. And him, him doing it, it was almost like, like it was meant to be. You know, pretty boy Whit Merrifield wins it all for the Gamecocks. Our poster child, you know, our, one of our captains, junior, you know, been there for three years. Um, you know, he was leaving. He had, got drafted by the Royals. You know, so you, you lose yourself. I, I mean, I remember we, we won. And I, I, I didn't even start for Wingo. Wingo was my boy. I daughter for Wicked. Um, just to get him down on the ground. Um, so it, it it was just, you know, you, you really can't explain it. Um, you know, your heart starts to beat and, and you, you're you with your brothers and you, you did something, something that had never been done before at South Carolina. Um, and for me to be a part of it, you know, Miami boy, it's crazy. Talk about the reception, Adrian, when you got back, because I, I know that was probably something we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm sure that was something that uh, you really enjoyed at South Carolina was playing in front of the fans that the Gamecocks have. And I know the reception for you guys was, you know, I know it was good in 2011, but in 2010, it was different, obviously, like you said, the first time it had ever happened. I know it was a massive reception. J just talk about that reception you received in Columbia and your relationship with the Gamecock fans as well. It was almost kind of like, like, like you just won the World Series and you're doing your, a parade. It's what it felt like. You know, I, that I did watch growing up, big leagues, World Series every year. Um, and watching those guys celebrating a parade and having the whole city behind them, that's what it felt like. You know, we get off the plane and there's people lined up with signs. And, and I just, in my head, I was like, I can't wait to go out and party tonight. That's what I was thinking. I can't wait to go with my guys and party tonight. Um, you know, because of 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 of, the, of 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 everything we got. You know, the fans were amazing. We're amazing. You know, we're we're on the bus on the way to the basketball stadium, and fans are honking and and chasing the, the bus. And I've never seen that before. And the SEC, uh, the uh, Under Armour, I think, got us a little camera, and I'm recording to show everybody back home what this is because we've never seen this before. You know, I know the Marlins won down here in 97 and 2003, but I didn't go to a parade. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was just – it was surreal to me um, going into that basketball stadium and having it packed and then getting love from the football team, the football players, the respect from the athletes and our peers um, is what meant the most, at least to me. You know, you, you go to class with a football player – and you don't know him, but he daps you up because he knows what, what we did. You know, that, that, that to me was, was, was the biggest thing, was having the respect from our peers and our other athletes. So, Adrian, let's move into the 2011 season. Uh, you guys, obviously, you mentioned Witt, obviously taken by the Royals. There are a lot of other guys drafted. Sam Dyson, Witt, Blake Cooper, kind of your top three guys that are taking the draft, leave South Carolina. Um, you know, one thing that I heard Ray Tanner say before this Gamecocks baseball season, I'm sure he said it back then and has said it for as long as he coached, is that at South Carolina, players change, but the expectations do not. So you guys come back on campus, 
you know, in the fall, if you've played your summer leagues or whatever, and I'm sure that the expectations are just reset, let's go repeat. Was that the thought in your mind? It's, it's just that was the number one goal. Hey, let's go back and let's repeat again. Well, first time I saw, I came into the locker room, I saw Matt Price that year in 2011, and I told him, hey, I'm still hungry. Let's go get another one. You know, it was just that, that mindset. We had so many guys coming back that we believed we can go back and win it. Um, on top of the fact that now we had another Friday night guy in Michael Ross. You know, after, after Mike, you know, took that leap and pitched against Clemson and UCLA, now you lose Cooper and Dyson, that, that it really hurts. But now you still got Mike, that's your Friday night guy. You know, so all we needed to do was add our Saturday and Sunday guy. We didn't know who it was going to be. Um, and we missed and matched, and Tyler Webb and Kobe Holmes and Forrest Kumis was huge for us as a freshman. Um, but we knew we had so, so much of the core coming back. Christian Walker with a year of experience. Evan Marzilli with a year of experience. Me with a year of experience in the SEC. Robert Barry with a year of experience in the SEC. Brady getting the fifth year being able to come back was humongous, you know? So we had, I mean, Jackie coming back as well. You know, we had so many guys coming back um, that we, we believed it could happen. And we just, we, it, it just got, we, we played looser that second year and we almost played with a sense of, we got this, like a business-like mindset where we knew we, we knew we needed to do and we would just get it done. And I definitely think it showed, Adrian, on the field and on the stat sheet because you guys that year, I mean, just dominated. 55-14, and 22-8, and eight, you won the SEC East. You guys were conference champions as well. Um, I feel like reading off those stats, it's a simple question, but I'll ask you, if you had to pick between the 2010 and 2011 teams, I mean, which would you say was better? Would you say 11, or do you think the 10 team had the edge? If we had to play head-to-head, yeah, yeah. If it was a head-to-head -head game, who do you think would win between the 11 and, uh, and 10 teams? I, I, I think the 10 team would win so only because we were so tough. I can't even, I can't even answer this. I can't answer this. I, I, I just can't because we, 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 it would be so tough to score off of Cooper and, and Ross. You know, so um, – I, I I don't I don't know. I was gonna now, say I, I'd me, pay good money to me, watch Roth and Cooper go against each other. Yeah, I have no doubt. <laughs> I mean, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Coop can still pitch. I guarantee you that. You know, Mike just retired, so. Um, but I, I I tell you this: for me, 2010 was was more special because we hadn't done it before. You know, it, it was it was different in the sense where. We needed to earn. It was almost like we played to earn our right to be called champions, to, to get respect. We, we gritted it out and we were gritty. 2011 was business-like. Like, we knew coming into your city, we were going to win the series. There was no question about it. We were coming in to win the series. That was the difference between the two, the two years for me. For sure. So let's go ahead and move in. I already talked about how you guys did during the regular season, Adrian. Let's talk about that postseason 2011 team. You were actually named to the NCAA 
uh, Columbia Regional All-Tournament team. Uh, you actually had the game-winning RBI single in the 2-1 win over Georgia Southern. If I remember correctly, they threw a really a, a top arm, obviously, at you guys that game. You guys won 2-1. No, yeah. was it Barnes? I think I it, was, it was uh, Moy. No, it wasn't Barnes. It wasn't Barnes. Yeah, there you go. That's him. Moy, yeah. They, they threw a top arm anyways. You get the game-winning RBI. But after that, you guys sweep through the regional. I mean, you already – you basically answered the question I was going to ask, though. I, I mean, it, it seemed like – I remember specifically watching – it really did feel like business-like. The difference between the 10 and 11, and, you know, fairly so, was the 10 team had never done it before. It was South Carolina kind of not – I don't want to say learning to win, but, it, you know, learning to go through and advance through each stage and obviously claim something that national championship it had never gotten. 2011, to me, had a completely different vibe and like what you're saying was you guys had a goal, knew the goal, and just simply went out and executed the goal. And I don't think that ever wavered for you guys during that run. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound disrespectful in any way to our opponents. We played a lot of good teams, um, but it was almost not. I don't want to say boring because it wasn't boring, <laughs> but it felt that way. Where if a team would score two runs, you know, they would be so up. And in our dugout, we were like, "You scored two, that's cute," type of thing. <laughs> like we we knew we knew what we needed to do. We knew how how, how to play. We we knew we had the veterans and the leaders, and we weren't going to play um, to the moment. We were going to stay engaged and, and stay even keel. Um, we, we just knew how to, how to win games. Um, and it, was, it wasn't easy at all. Um, it, it, it just, it just there, was less, there was less, like, panic and frantic, and there, there was no, you know, losing and having to come back and winning six from the year before. It was more, and, and like you said, it, it was more businesslike. That's what it felt to me, and I think to all of us. You know, we, we showed up and expected to win. 2010, so, we would show up, and it was we got to fight and, and be tough, and that's how we got to win. 2011 is we showed up, we expected to win. The team on the other, in the other dugout knew they were the underdogs, knew that we had an edge. They just knew there was an aura about the 2011 team of, we're the best team on the field and we're going to show you. So, yeah, like I said, you guys, you know, after that Georgia Southern game, really, I mean, two easy wins over Stetson to win the Columbia regional. You guys host the super regional, obviously, you know, two easy wins over UConn. It's funny that George Springer was on that team. I think a lot of people forget he's a very successful big leaguer now with the Astros, but I mean, five, one, eight, two, two pretty simple, easy wins. Talk about the dog pile after the, the second UConn game. You guys are going back to Omaha, though. I mean, I know it was business-like, but what was – I guess what was the rush of emotion for you? Was it any different than 2010? Was it less exciting to know that you're going back to Omaha in any way, or was it just the same kind of adrenaline rush of knowing that you reached one of your goals? It, it, was, it was not the same. It was, it was different. It, it, I'm not going to lie and say it was the same. It was different. Uh, 2010, it was – you know, wow, we're, we're, we're going to Omaha type of thing. 2011 was, let's go back and take care of business. It was more of, hey, you know what? We closed out Rosenblatt. Let's go win and open up TD Ameritrade. Let's do that. You know, it would it, be, be pretty cool if we closed one and opened the other one. Um, but it was a different celebration. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a shock to anybody, and it wasn't a shock to us that we were going back. 
So you guys, Adrian, get to Omaha. It's crazy. You know, we talked about 2010 team being the team of destiny. 2011 had some of those moments as well. In the first game against Texas A&M, you guys have your guy, Michael Roth in the mound. He spots those guys four runs in the first inning. All South Carolina does, obviously, come back. Scott Wingo, your boy with the walk-off hit um, to win 5-4. to four. You guys take care of business against Virginia 7-1. to one. And then you face Virginia again and beat those guys 3-2 to two in 13 innings. And I want to ask you, Adrian, because for me, it kind of felt like that that moment again where it felt like South Carolina was the team of destiny once again when I, I think it was that game where Christian Walker's on first. You guys have the hit and run with Adam Matthews at the plate. He swings through it. And obviously we know Christian Walker, with all due respect to Christian, love the guy, but he's not exactly the most fleet of foot guy on the roster, I'd imagine. But <laughs> the, throw, the throw down to second – I think it uh, goes into center field. He goes a third. That ball bounces off the bag, I think, and he scores. I mean, was that a moment where you just felt like, you know what, we're just we're meant to do this again. It's going to happen. I, I don't know if that was the moment for me, but that's just who we were. We didn't beat ourselves. We never did. Um, and, and, and that's why we were able to be so successful. You know, we, we tried to play – as clean as we could, you know, as far as errors and walks um, and not make that mistake. And a lot of teams we, we played against made those mistakes. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 was, it was crazy, you know. Uh, I think the moment for me was, was against Florida when Jake Williams throws a guy at home. I love Jake Williams to death. One of my guys, too. Love him to death. I mean, I, I interviewed for – He's doing a, a, a production TV thing for for our, our years, and I interviewed with him about three years ago in Atlanta. Um, you know, we keep in touch through text. Jake Williams does not have a good arm. <laughs> he just doesn't, and he would tell you the same thing. He can hit, but he doesn't have a good arm. And he threw the guy out at home. That, to me, was when I it clicked for me. When Jake Williams threw out a guy at home, I was just hoping he hit me for a cutoff so I can throw home. <laughs> and he threw it all the way home. I was so pumped. And I get into the dugout, and I'm thinking to myself, we're going to win it all again. I just knew it. And then on top of that, the, the inning before that, Wingo and Barry, Wingo makes two diving plays or a diving play, double play. Barry scoops it. That, to me, I get that first game against Florida, those times, was when I knew we were going to win it. And, and I want to get, obviously, Adrian into that game. Let's go ahead and jump into it. You guys, overall, again, get the win 2-1 to one in 11 innings. But I'll ask you first. I mean, have you – because to me, I don't know that I've ever watched, without a doubt, a South Carolina baseball game, but I don't think I've ever watched a crazier baseball game with more drama than that one. I mean, have you ever played in a baseball game that was crazier than that Florida game? No, never, never. Um, you know, we were on the verge of losing. Um, but we knew Florida and our, our coaches, pitching coaches, had such a good report on how to pitch to guys. And and our bullpen guys, John Taylor and Matt Price, were the best duel in the SEC that year. I mean, John Taylor was lights out. If you needed a ground ball double play, he got it for us. Um, and I think he was the one that was pitching in that in that ninth, I think, Ninth inning, mm-hmm. um, yeah. when Wingo makes diving play, rushes it to home, and and Barry scoops it with a with a with a catcher's mitt. It's not supposed to happen. <laughs> it's not supposed to happen. Then a ground ball back to the mound. I mean, back to Wingo. 
throws it to Barry. Barry throws a guy at first. Next inning, Jake Williams throws a guy at home. That, that's what I'm talking about. Those those events is when you know, you know, you're gonna win. You're gonna win it all. Yeah, Adrian, talk talk about that series of events with Scott Wingo because it's interesting. You know, we've had Scott on the show and obviously gotten his 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 take from it, which I don't know if you've heard, but it's honestly crazy to hear Scott Wingo describe that diving play because he's talking about seeing the spin of the baseball and knowing it bounced this way. And I mean, it really speaks to the greatness that is Scott Wingo because I'm thinking that's all happening so fast. Like, how are you seeing that play so slowly happening? Literally the spin on the ball coming into your glove. But talk about just from your your perspective, because I think any casual fan, at least, or fan in general that was watching that game is thinking, okay, South Carolina's probably about to lose this baseball game. And then the Scott Wingo effect happens. And like you said, he makes the diving play. Robert Berry makes probably the most underrated play of the 2011 College World Series, like you said, with that pick that – you know, if it's an inch over and hits the catcher's mask, it's it's a completely different conversation. I mean, you're at third base. Just talk about your perspective on the plays that Scott Wingo and Robert Berry made. I mean, you had to be just mind-blown watching these guys do what they did. I mean, I was there with Wingo for two years. I've seen Wingo make crazy plays. And in 2011, not only was he good with the glove, but he was probably our, our leading hitter, you know, and, and most clutch hitter, him and, him and Walker. Um, I think Wingo tied the game with a base hit that game um, up the middle against Hudson Randall. Mm-hmm. Um, but he dives, and I'm watching. I have no idea what he's talking about, about slow motion and spin. Because I, I, did, I, I, I caught ground balls, too. I didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> but that's just how good, how good he was with the glove. Um, you know, it was almost like he was born to catch ground balls. And when he dives, you just – I'm thinking – you know, we got it. It was a one hop. You got it. And watching it now, I see it. And he rushed it to home. He had plenty of time. But he doesn't know that. Doesn't know that. And Robert Berry's scooping it with a, with a catcher's mitt. That's the craziest <laughs> thing. It's with the catcher's mitt. Um, and he, Robert was clutch for us, too. I think he was our regional MVP. Um, so we had so many guys with experience. And, and Wingo is, is – was 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 one was a top guy that year, offensively and defensively. Um, and Carolina fans know it; they saw him for four years. How good he was with the glove. He wasn't always good with the bat early in his career, but later in his career he was. Um, but with the glove, he was always a magician. And it, it goes back. Best play I've ever seen him make was against Coastal. Bases loaded, ball off Cooper's glove. He catches it on the bag. And almost as he's falling onto the ground, throws it to first for a double play. That's how good Scott Wingo was with the glove. So it wasn't a surprise that he caught it, um, but it was it was it was a crazy play. You know, it's funny, Adrian, that earlier you brought up the uh, the Jake Williams thing because you're definitely not the first, you're definitely not the first guy to say that. I heard that way back. Uh, Forrest Kumis, oh, at least somebody else said it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Forrest Kumis, a good buddy of mine who we had on this show way back in the beginning of the podcast. But uh, no, he he definitely was very vocal about it, just saying that, like you said, Jake Williams did not have a great arm and. I, you know, just talking to him and multiple people thinking that when that ground ball hit the left field, he said that his initial reaction was he dropped his head. He's like, this game is over. I mean, no offense against Jake, but that's what his thought was. And Jake Williams, he said, makes, you know, obviously makes the throw of his life. I mean, makes the throw of his life yeah. to home, throws the guy out, and everyone's in shock. I mean, it, it's 
just a hilarious story and just such a funny story just in regards to that game. I know you guys had to – obviously were excited, but had to be giving him a ton of crap when you got back in the dugout. Oh, no no doubt about it. We were letting him – I mean, people were – I remember running to the dugout and people were pushing each other like, hey, Williams, throw somebody out type of thing. <laughs> so that, that that's – hey, but Jake was a hell of a player and a, and a good hitter and clutch too. Um, and and that's why that's why he was able to throw the guy out. He he was just clutch. He was a clutch hitter, and he threw the, he made the throw of his life when we really needed it. You know, we lose that game, and not not that we would have not won it all still, but now you're giving Florida a sense of confidence uh, that they didn't have. No doubt. So you guys again get the win two to one. Everything that happened in that game. I know you mentioned Adrian that that specific Jake Williams throw was the moment that you knew that you guys were winning it all. Um, it's funny when we had Scott on, and I've talked to Stephen about this as well. But I believe he said Stephen Garcia, South Carolina's quarterback, was at the was at you guys' team hotel when you got back after the game one victory. And I believe what he said was, you know, I just saw the Florida guys come in. They had all their heads down and they were dejected. You guys have got this. I mean, was there even a sliver of a doubt in your mind that tomorrow we're taking this thing home, we're going to do this all over again and win the College World Series? No, no, no doubt. I, I felt the same. I felt we were, we were going to win. Um, they had thrown, um, I think, was it Randall? Yeah, Hudson Randall mm-hmm. was their toughest guy that we faced. Um, and we were able to beat him. And once you, once you, you know, you, you beat the, their horse, and their best guy, they don't play the same behind their number two or number three, no matter who it is. Um, and we were able to, you know, and they, they had the game. They were up 1-0 in the eighth. We took it from them by tying the game. And then those plays by Wingo and Barry and then Jake Williams, it's almost like that was their last straw. Once we won, we took, the, we took their soul is what it was. We, they, they knew it, and we knew it. And you can tell it during the second game. You know, I think we beat them easily, 7-2 or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they were making errors. They knew it. And that's what I'm talking about from the 2010 to 2011 team. Florida Gators knew before the game started that they were not going to win. They knew it. So, Adrian, yeah, like you said, you guys win that one 5-2. to two. And I, I, like you said, I remember watching that one really not a ton. It wasn't very dramatic. I mean, it just – it felt like a game, like you said, that it was in hand the entire time. Uh, Michael Roth obviously gets the ball. And anytime you hand the ball to him, you're expecting a W, no doubt. Matt Price gets the save. He actually got the save in both Florida games. But uh, I'll simply ask you, again, Matt Price, that, that, that fly ball that, hit, that is hit to Jackie to end the College World Series. You guys are national champions back-to-back. I know you said it felt different in 2011, but describe your emotions in that dog pile. I'm sure it had to be pretty sweet, especially when you factor in that uh, that was your last game in a South Carolina Gamecocks uniform. Yeah, I, you know, I always said um, before before the draft, the MLB draft ended, you know, I, I hadn't gotten drafted the first two days. And I always said, you know what, I'll leave here a two-time champ. And that was my goal. And, you know, it, it happened, and I was so excited and so happy um, that – I got to leave off on top, and I didn't have to cry. You know, sometimes when you – like my senior year of high school, I cried because we didn't win it all, and I let my guys down. I didn't have to cry. It was, it was so, so much joy, and I was ready to move on and play pro ball, 
um, because we won it all, you know, so there was never a, a, a sadness at all. Um, you know, I, obviously I knew it was my last year and I was very excited that we beat Florida um, because Peter Mooney and my people don't know this, but I'm going to say it. Peter Mooney, uh, his older brother went to Florida and didn't like it there. And uh, Sully kind of, they, they, you know, they, they got into it or something and, and Peter wanted to stick it to Florida. And that second game, Peter go, hits a home run to right against Florida and we beat Florida. And it was so much joy to help Peter Mooney that had a chip on his shoulder against Florida, um, help him knock off the Gators. Um, so it, it was pretty cool. And I think there's a picture um, of it, of me and Peter really hugging for a long time. And, and we talked about it while we're hugging. You did it. We beat Florida for you. Um, so it was pretty cool. That's awesome. So Adrian, like you mentioned, I, I know it was going on during South Carolina's postseason, but you were drafted in the 49th round by the Kansas City Royals. And I know you talked about, and, and I was a little surprised too. I mean, not as high as you wanted to go. And I thought you were kind of underrated as a prospect um, as far as where you were drafted. But either way, you get the call, you're drafted by the Kansas City Royals. Talk about your emotions once you get that call. I mean, was it more excitement for you, the fact that you got drafted? I know you've been drafted before. You obviously drafted at a JUCO in the 45th round by the Houston Astros. But, I mean, was it more excitement for you that you got the call and you're drafted and you're going to play pro ball, which I know had probably been your dream your entire life? Or did you have some disappointment as far as you felt like, again, talking about that chip on your shoulder, that you were sort of an underlooked prospect coming out of college? No, I, I, at all. No negative energy through me when I got drafted. I was so grateful and so thankful and that I was able to at least get a chance. Um, you know, people talk about pro ball, they don't really know it. Everybody thinks, oh, you get drafted, you're going to get a chance. No, that's not, that's not the case. Um, that's why South Carolina is so big for me because I had so much fun playing uh, with those guys and the, that coaching staff and in front of those fans. Um, pro ball was nothing like that. You know, I, I can go four for four and the next – and I'm benched for three, four games because the guy in front of me signed for 800 grand. You know, so it was it – was, I was thankful and grateful that I got a chance to play pro ball. But after the fact, when I got released, you know, it wasn't fun. You know, the last my, – my last two seasons, I was, I was on the bench. I was a spot guy. Not because the guy in front of me was better, but because he had more money than me. Um, but I, I'm grateful to the Royals for, for drafting me um, and giving me a chance to play pro ball. But those South Carolina years and those teams, you know, I, I'll never forget. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you, Adrian, about your experience. Again, you played pro ball from 2011 to 2013 in the Royals organization. Uh, but I think it's interesting because I've talked to some other guys, some of your former teammates about – I think it's interesting when you play at a program like South Carolina, like you're mentioning, I mean, the real serious transition you make going from being, because I mean, when you're a South Carolina baseball player, you know, firsthand, I mean, you are, you're treated a certain type of way, especially with the success you guys had. I mean, you know, you guys are taken care of, right. And well, well deservedly. So, and then when you go to the minor leagues, it is literally starting all over again. People, like you said, have this image of professional baseball in their head, and they have no idea what the minor leagues is like with the bus rides and the PB&Js. That's a very, very real thing. Um, you know, talk about that transition for you, because I'm sure not even really just on the field, but, I mean, off the field, 
like you said, the years at South Carolina were so good. I feel like it would have made it almost unrealistic to think those expectations would ever be matched in professional baseball unless you made it to the show. I mean, just going back to, I remember like my first two weeks I was, I was there in Arizona. Um, I go to the, to the cubby and I ask him for a blue undershirt. That's all I needed. I needed a blue undershirt. And the guy told me, who are you? Use your gray one that you had on this morning. You know, you go to Cal Lipsy when I was in South Carolina, and he'd give me a shirt, shorts, batting gloves. You want a belt? What do you want? It, it, was, it was whatever. Um, you know, they, they just they didn't know who I was. They, did, they treated me as a 49th rounder who signed for the minimum, $1,000. Um, you know, and, and then once the year ended that first year, I think I batted 323 with about four home runs. And I guess somebody told the Cubby who I was that I had played at South Carolina. So right before I leave, he goes, hey, Mo, hey, I didn't know you won two titles. He's like, do you need anything to take home? Any bags, any shirts? <laughs> the guy had – and I go, nah, man, I'm all right. I'm good. I don't need anything. So, you know, I, I had never had anything at Miami-Dade. You know, we, we, we didn't get a lot of stuff at Miami-Dade. Um, South Carolina was, was surreal to me. I remember coming in uh, after my – after December, you know, going in to start spring at South Carolina, and my locker is full of gear. And I think I asked Barry that was next to me or Wit, Hey, do we got to give this back at the end of the year? <laughs> I mean, that, that's how crazy it was. I mean, I came from, from Miami day. We didn't, we didn't have anything. We had a t-shirt and shorts, you know, and, and I, I was grateful, you know, I wasn't the guy that I would go in every day and after stuff. Um, Cause I feel embarrassed, but you know, I was grateful, you know, the program, and it's a blessing to play there, and and any and any SEC school. Um, everybody, you know, the, the 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 gear and everything you get, it it's it's as close as it as as to the big leagues as it gets. No doubt. So, Adrian, I want to talk about after your professional baseball career, obviously, which ended um, in 2013. You returned to South Carolina to join Chad Holbrook's staff as a student assistant coach, I believe, for the 2014 season. Uh, just talk about what went into that decision. I, I know it was something where you talked about you wanted to get back to South Carolina, finish your degree, things of that nature. But just just talk about that decision when you uh, you rejoined Chad Holbrook in the South Carolina baseball program. Well, Tanner told me to forego my professional career. He told me, you don't need to go play pro ball. I go, Coach, it's been my dream all year. He goes, come back, be my student assistant, so we, we, we can get your coaching career started. Um, and I told him, no, I'm not going to do that. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm going to go play pro ball. He goes, okay, do whatever you want. So, it, that, you know, that always was in the back of my head. I always told myself if, I, if it didn't pan out professional-wise that I would, always, I would love to stay in the coaching. Um, so I, I reached out to Holbrook uh, before I got released, and I told him, hey, you know, I'm thinking about asking for my release. Um, you know, do you need a student assistant for next year? And he said, hell yeah, let's go, let's do it. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it was awesome. You know, Espo was on the staff still. Busher was there. Myers was there and Holbrook. So guys that I knew. Uh, and, and Billy was still the, the strength coach. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to do it, and I wanted, I wanted to be back, back in my, at my second home, be, be a part of it. 
Adrian, I'll ask you kind of a two-part question. One, were you surprised in 2012 when Ray Tanner, excuse me, Ray Tanner decided to step down and call it a career at South Carolina? And two, also, you know, you were with Chad Holbrook directly, and I remember talking to some others about his tenure at South Carolina, where they they really honestly just said, listen, I mean, Chad Holbrook obviously was on those staffs that won the national championship in 2010-11. He came from North Carolina when they competed for national titles. All he knew was winning. They were very, very surprised at how his career played out at South Carolina coaching career just because they expected, I mean, it's just going to keep rolling. This thing at South Carolina is really just going to keep rolling. So I'll ask you, one, were you surprised when Ray Tanner decided to step down in 2012? And two, were you surprised at all at the way that Chad Holbrook's tenure at South Carolina went as head coach? Because I don't think it went like Gamecock fans expected it to, per se. Um, for, for the Tanner question, uh, I, I was surprised. I, I, I didn't think he would ever <laughs> – I mean, I think he'd be in a wheelchair coaching. Um, I, I didn't think he would ever uh, retire. Um, but I, I guess he felt like it was time uh, to retire, and, you know, he did. And he's a great AD now. Um, for Holbrook, um, and I really don't care who gets upset at me, it, w- it was the players. The players let him down. They did. Because if, if I was on that team for Holbrook, we would have won. Um, I think the lack of leadership on those teams uh, and holding guys accountable is the reason why Holbrook's not there anymore. You know, Holbrook was a great recruiter and a really good coach. Um, so I don't, I don't buy the notion of, um, you know, uh, he, he wasn't successful. It was the players that were there. They weren't held accountable by each other. Um, they didn't put baseball as a priority. And that's why Holbrook's career at South Carolina, uh, it, it ended, um, in my opinion. Um, it, it, it was just, if, if, if let's say 2011, Holbrook's our head guy, we still win the national championship. It was the different guys in the locker room. Um, and to me, it goes back to that. No leadership on those Holbrook teams. None. I don't care who gets upset. They come see me in Miami. <laughs> and I want to ask you, Adrian, because obviously you were a guy, being a student assistant, you were in you know, the clubhouse with those guys. Do, do you feel like that those teams, you know, and again, somebody might get upset at me for saying this, but do you feel like those teams almost sort of tried to just live off the laurels of what you guys did in 2010, 11, and 12? Because I've honestly kind of felt like that's been an issue, maybe not with all the guys. And I think Mark Kingston's doing a good job of, you know, even with this past season, the way it went. I think he's the right guy for the job. South Carolina baseball is going to be back to where it needs to be in no time. But there have certainly been some teams at South Carolina where, like you said, I don't want to say character issues per se, but that leadership's not there. And it almost feels like guys more so are living off of the laurels of what you guys did versus putting the work in and going out and achieving it themselves. It's a different group of, of players now. Um, you know, I, and, and now coaching, uh, I coach at Miami-Dade, um, it, it's just different. The kids are different now. Um, you know, social media and all these showcases and, and summer ball, that's, that's hurting. That's hurting. Um, you know, even myself, I'm coaching at Miami-Dade College, and I got guys that come in like, they, like they've done something. They have they they haven't done nothing, you know, and and that's what I feel like they you know guys coming in and not just South Carolina other programs 
and they feel like they've done something. You haven't done anything, and there's 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 no there's no grittiness about them. Um, there's so there there there's so much camaraderie against opponents and friendliness. You know, every game that I played, I almost got into a fight with somebody because I needed that. I needed I needed that chip. I, I the guy the the pitcher. I needed that chip in order to be successful against him, and I don't see that anymore. You know, I and, and it's not it's not just at South Carolina. I'm just I'm just saying that other programs. I just think the kids are different now, and there's got to be a way to reach those kids. By the time they get to to college, you know, it's too late, and it starts with the high school. The high school coaches, um, they, they there there's so many kids transferring now. You know, in Miami. You can transfer now. You can go wherever you want. So if, if I bench a guy for not running it out, he can transfer. And it's okay. So the parents think it's okay. So the, the kids think it's okay to act the way they do. And it's not. Kids aren't being held accountable. And that's what I think it is. That's where the problem is that the kids are not being held accountable. So, yeah, Adrian, you're, you're an assistant coach at uh, Miami-Dade. Is that correct? Interim head coach. At interim Miami head Day. coach. Okay, got got to get the title right there. I, I'm just get the title I, right. Get the title right. Put some respect on your name. I, I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm just curious to ask you, obviously, because you are in the coaching realm, and I, it sounds like to me, I would assume you're going to be in the coaching realm for a very, very long time and be successful. But talking about those players, I, I'm curious from your perspective as a as a head coach or as an interim head coach, as a coach in general, how do you? I don't know if coach that out of the kids is the right word, but how do you pull out – how do you – can you teach grittiness, toughness, and a kid having the chip on their shoulder, or do you have to do just a more – be even more thorough in the recruiting process to find those kids that fit that mold? It's, it's being more thorough and getting to know the kids and not just going to watch them at a tournament and say, oh, he throws 94, we're, we're going to offer him. It's getting to know the kid. Um, and going to games where they don't think you're going to be at and hiding and stuff like that. I remember, I remember going to watch a kid um, and he hits a fly ball to, to pitcher, doesn't run it out. The ball drops, the guy's out at first. He just got drafted in the second round this past year. I wrote him off. I didn't, I didn't even sign him. Father called me, hey, if we don't sign, can we go to Miami Dade? I told him no. Second rounder. He ended up signing. So, you know, uh, it, it, you got you to gotta go watch games. But you, it's not just I'm going to go to late point in Atlanta. No. Go to that fall game. Go watch the kid then, you know, and, and, and monitor the Instagrams and stuff like that because that's what it's there for. Um, and you can tell who's fake tough. You can just tell. Um, when you're recruiting, you talk to a kid or, or you go see him pitch, um, hands start to get sweaty and he's – He's, he's trying to dry his hands off. That's not the kid I want. I don't want that kid. I don't care if he's 94. They'll eat him up in the SEC. Um, so it's, it's just paying attention to detail and, and going to watch kids, not just in showcases and tournaments, going to the high school games um, and see how they act and get, and get a feel for their character and their personality and their parents, um, which I think it, it's big. It's big. And all it takes is to get two or three of those gritty, tough guys that can ho hold all those other prima donnas ac uh, accountable. 
but it takes two or three. You can't recruit all first-rounders. You can't because those guys are not all those guys are leaders. You need, you need that dirtbag to play third. You need that guy, that gritty guy. You need him. You need two or three of those guys. And, I, and that's how I think you can build a, a, a really good team. And I, I would assume you would say that was certainly your role on the uh, the South Carolina team as well. When did it, I guess, getting back to it, when did it click for you that, or did it ever click for you, or maybe with the 2011 season that you felt like, you know, obviously there were a ton of guys, ton of studs, but I, I imagine at some point you had to feel, again, one, you were that leader that was holding guys accountable. But two, did you ever feel like this is my team? Like I'm the leader of this team. I'm the emotional leader. I'm the guy, I'm the guy that's going to hold everyone accountable and make sure we do what we need to do to win these championships. Well, I felt like 2011, not that it was my team, but that I was one of the leaders and, and, and captains of that team because 2010 I had helped win a national championship. In 2010, it, it wasn't as easy. Um, you know, so I kind of had to pick my spots um, and stuff like that. But once the season got rolling and I was able to be free and, and people saw how I played, you know, it was easier to, to, to morph into that role. Um, but it, it wasn't easy in 2010. I had to keep my mouth shut a lot because I hadn't, I hadn't done anything. I hadn't helped. Um, so in the fall, I couldn't really say anything. Um, and that's why I hit like 270 in the fall because I wasn't, I wasn't me. I wasn't myself. Um, you know, once, once I got to be myself and, and Coach Holbrook's text after the Mississippi State game, that helped me. And I, I think if you go look, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I would say after that Mississippi State game, I go off for like four straight series because I was being myself. No doubt. So, Adrian, I'm going to get you out of here. I got two questions for you left. I, the first one I want to ask you, um, what's the funny – obviously, Ray Tanner is a guy that is, uh, is very entertaining for sure. I mean, you already mentioned the uh, – the rivalry series. It's funny. I didn't even bring up the 2011 thing when they accused, because I talked to Christian Walker about this. They accused you guys of warming up the bats and stuff like that. I mean, that was a whole fiasco. You talked about what they said about Tyler Webb and you guys, you know, went out and pounded them. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, rightfully so. But uh, what's, what's the, I guess, I don't know about the funniest, you know, the funniest uh, interaction you've had with Ray Tanner, maybe the most memorable interaction you've had with Ray Tanner that Gamecock fans don't know about. Well, and and this kind of threw me off a little bit, but it was on my recruiting trip. I'm sitting down there with Peter O'Brien. No, not Peter O'Brien. I'm sorry. Will Myers. Will Myers in the big leagues. He ended up signing with South Carolina. But we're we're having lunch or dinner at Longhorn. Holbrook had just picked me and my brother up from the airport, and we're sitting down, and Holbrook's talking to me, Coach Tanner's wooing, being charm-like with the Myers family. Um, he hadn't signed yet with us. He looks over at me and he goes, you're Adrian Morales? I go, yeah. He turned his face and kept talking to Will Myers. <laughs> and in my head, I was like, because, because this guy's a better prospect? And I just went back and I go, I'm going to show this guy. I, I can't wait to get on campus. And it, I don't know if, if he did it on purpose or he maybe thought I only spoke Spanish because my last name was Morales. <laughs> but it, that, that already created a bigger tip of who's this, what's this guy? How is this guy not wooing me? I'm the, be I'm the best infielder in, in, in Florida. 
oh my god he drove me nuts and and it, i held on to that my whole sophomore year did, did you ever bring that up to him once you got on campus and started to do what you did was that ever something you talked I to him brought about it, i brought it up to him i brought it up to him when i was a student assistant we went on a recruiting trip on a recruiting uh dinner for one of the incoming players and i told the family i go this is a good time and he they go what is and i go he's speaking to your son and to you guys because when i was on my recruiting trip he didn't speak to me at all <laughs> and he lost it you know it's the type of laugh where he couldn't control it type of laugh he just lost it at uh, uh i don't even know it was a fancy restaurant with the plate stay hot with the steaks mm -hmm. chris i guess yeah. i think it is mm -hmm. yeah there you go and he, he just lost it uh and he didn't even know about it you know but that's the most you know one of the most memorable stories i have with him that's awesome the last question adrian i'll get you out of here i guess kind of on the similar similar uh plane is that question but i guess your i want to say favorite memory but best story from that from either of the national championship teams that you can think of again maybe something that happened in the dugout behind closed doors you guys obviously had a ton of superstitions i feel like you you guys ex extremely close a lot of chemistry but maybe your your favorite memory or best story from those two national championship teams well, I mean, I, I think it was it was it was it was the the just the game where I lost Oklahoma, um, and then I text Brady, our captains Brady and Jay, said that I would do everything I can to to keep to keep them from playing and not and not you know their career at South Carolina being over with, um, and and that's who I was. Um, well, I I I, I didn't want to let those guys down. Um, but there's so many good moments, man, and. You know, Michael Roth, he gives up four, and we score four, and I punch him in the chest and tell him, no more runs. He says, you got it against Texas A&M. We won 5-4. Didn't give up another run. Um, you know, there, there's so many good moments um, that, you know, it, it's hard to pick just one. Uh, but those are a few. No doubt. Well, Adrian, appreciate you taking the time, man. Uh, obviously, I know I speak for all Gamecock fans when I say it was obviously a pleasure to watch you wear the garnet and black. I know personally, I, I really appreciated the uh, the fire and intensity you played with. It was easy to see, and I, you know, I will. And I know Gamecock fans will definitely be keeping up with your career at Miami Dade, how everything goes with the uh, your life in the coaching realms. Hopefully, one day, sometime soon, something will bring you back to Columbia, whether it be coaching or or what have you. But uh, really appreciate you taking the time, Adrian. Would definitely love to do it again sometime. No doubt, man. Any, any, anytime, any, anytime I can talk um, to the fans of South Carolina and my teammates, coaches, and you guys, um, you know, you guys show me a lot of love and a lot of respect, and I appreciate it. Without a doubt. Well, we appreciate it, man. So for Adrian Morales, I'm Chris Phillips. We appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of the Spurs Up Show. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. 
They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com 